And then uh, after a while, yeah, we managed to get this maybe worse spot. <laughs> this is <laughs> the back of a real estate agent. We'll stick up some photos to what to what that and was like. To, but people yeah. were. You'd have to walk past these real estate agents just to get to your get into the office. We must have driven in them the insane because <laughs> there was a lot of people out the, out the back. Yeah, yeah, all of these like young interns, uh, people who've flown in from all around the world, just coming, just constantly walking through this estate agent. <laughs> Because it was basically just like their back room that for some reason they were renting out. Yeah, um, like one of our early donors came when we gave him a tour. And when he like came into the office, his first reaction was, uh, is this legal? Yeah, <laughs> I doubt <laughs> it. Because there's kind of like 10 people or like eight people in this tiny room. Hey listeners, Rob here, head of research at 80,000 Hours. Last year, our CEO, Benjamin Todd, stepped down after 10 years straight leading 80,000 Hours, most of those years of which I was also around for. You might well be familiar with Benjamin's work because he was the main author of our career guide, as well as the main author of many research pieces on our website. And he came on the 80,000 Hours podcast for episode 71, Benjamin Todd on the key ideas of 80,000 Hours. And again in 2020 for a conversation on the varieties of long-termism and things that we might be getting wrong, uh, among other topics. I thought that Benjamin passing the torch would be a nice moment to reminisce together about the history of our organization, uh, including how it got off the ground, uh, you know, our scrappy early days, our move to America and back, uh, some of the highs that we've had, and various mistakes we think that we've made along the way. I guess they call this an uh, oral history, or at least uh, it's the stuff we could still remember as of 2022. My memory of all those times keeps getting uh, worse as the years go on, so uh, the sooner we got down those memories, the less distorted I thought that'd be. So the, the further things are away in time, the more nostalgia I seem to feel about them. So maybe I'll be telling my grandkids about our crazy office out the back of an estate agent uh, when I'm 90. Fingers crossed. Note that this was recorded quite a long time ago in June 2022, and a fair bit has happened since then. Uh, There's probably various different things that we might emphasize or talk about if we were recording now. Um, I think this is actually by far the longest gap we've ever had from recording to releasing something. Uh, but given that this was all about getting down, you know, some long-term history and it didn't feel super urgent, it kept getting bumped in favor of editing other interviews that, that did have more urgency to them. If you, listener, couldn't care less about 80,000 hours as an organization, uh, this one probably isn't for you. But if you're considering starting a new nonprofit or a think tank or otherwise promoting important ideas as a writer or community organizer, uh, this might offer some useful insight into what it's like, or at least what it was like for us. Alternatively, if we've influenced your career or worldview and you're just curious to know more about where this whole 80,000 hours project and uh, all of our ideas came from, how they've evolved over time and what Ben and I are like as people, uh, this also gives you some window into all of that. Separate from that, in a funny coincidence, 80,000 Hours is actually doing a hiring round to find a new CEO right now, uh, because our previous CEO, Howie Lampel, is moving on to a role at Open Philanthropy. We're currently accepting expressions of interest in the role, and we're doing that until the 10th of December, uh, so not that long in the future, and you want to get your expressions of interest in soon, if indeed you are interested. On top of that, there is a decent chance that we promote someone from within 80,000 Hours to become CEO which would uh, create a vacancy in another uh, senior leadership position. So at the same time as we're soliciting expressions of interest in the CEO role, we're also asking people to let us know if they might be interested in becoming our director of internal systems, our website director, or our director of special projects, should one of those positions happen to open up. Uh, you can find the job ad for this on our website at 80,000hours.org latest, or if you Google 80,000 hours work with us, that should bring you to a page listing all of our vacancies, uh, both now and anytime. 
I'll say a little about the role at the end of the episode, uh, and there really is plenty to say. But if you really want to know about it, I suggest you just go and read that proper job description on our website. Uh, there really is plenty to say. All right, without further ado, I bring you Benjamin Todd. So I hope we'll get to talk about the 80,000 hours organizational journey over the last uh, 12 years or so, as well as some of the important lessons that we've learned through our various different successes and, and mistakes. Um, but first, tell me a bit about what you were doing, I suppose, before you got uh, involved with all of this. So suppose we're, this is be you were at Oxford in 2007, eight or so? Yeah, so I'd wanted to kind of like do good in some type of vague way for a long time. And going back to, I think, when I was a teenager, one of the earliest things I can remember was somehow I came across the IPCC report, so the summary of like the expert consensus on climate change. Hmm. I think maybe I was reading these blogs about like the climate debates. Yeah. And I read all that and I was just like, whoa, climate change is like totally an important thing. Why is no one doing anything about it? This hmm. like makes so much sense. So I made like a summary of the IPCC report as a series of posters and okay. like got them put up on the wall in my school. Hmm trying to like hopefully persuade some of the other students to care about climate change as well and yeah. obviously convince no one. Okay. <laughs> um, but that was maybe like, you know, my, one of my first kind of proto-EA things I, I did. Yeah, I remember going or just walking around the streets putting, I think, like negative flyers about huge cars on, on four-wheel drives <laughs> in Australia. I think that's one of my like early memories Ooh. of an extremely like inefficient uh, activity. Yeah, I mean, I could see that kind of working, though maybe it just hardens mm. people against you like... Fuck yeah. this guy kind of reaction. Yeah, I expect it probably doesn't cause people to sell their cars um, very, <laughs> very, very often. Okay, so so that was kind of high school. What kind of opinions did you develop uh, at, at university? Yeah, I mean, I remained pretty kind of climate change focused for a while. And just as I left high school, I did like an environmental audit of my school as well and was saying like we could design the buildings to be like sustainable and like here's how we could have air circulation that didn't require energy input. Yeah. And you know, like, should we get solar panels? And yeah, the result of that was also like my had the deputy headmaster writing back and saying like we have started an organic garden okay. <laughs> were you <laughs> Which, happy about that well no i mean the whole report was kind of like i was quite influenced by david Mackay, i think I by then already so i was already being like we need to focus on like the big things right and... this is this is a physicist who uh wrote this famous book about what is actually causing climate change by the numbers yeah it's and... called sustainability without the hot air and it's about like how can we have a plan that actually adds up in reducing our co2 emissions as much as we need yeah so the organic garden did not fully satisfy you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think when I then arrived at university, I was like kind of searching for something. So I would go to loads of talks and I guess I got involved with like, I would, I went to the Oxford Radical Forum, which was like super left-wing politics stuff. And I kept on doing climate advocacy stuff a bit. So one day we arranged a thing where we tried to get as many professors to give a lecture relating their subject to climate change. So it was yeah. like philosophy of climate change, physics oh. of climate change, economics of climate change. And we got like a bunch of people to yeah do these, just kind of like trying to spread awareness, not super strategically. But then one of these talks I went to was then Toby Ord, who there was these uh, every Wednesday, I think our chaplain at college would have a talk where we'd all sit on the floor and eat like free food. Yeah. And yeah, one day I was like sitting on the floor watching Toby and he gave his Taking Charity Seriously talk, which is the one where he kind of, it's the founding talk of giving what we can. And he leads you through like, well, this idea of a quality. So like a year of quality, just a, um, a year of healthy life. It talks about how like the NHS will save qualities for 20,000 pounds, $30,000. And gives you this really strong sense of like, wow, this is like a really valuable thing. Mm. And then he kind of shows that like, 
okay, there's things you could do that are 10 times more cost effective than that. Mm. And then like 10 times more cost effective than that again. Mm. And then if you focus on the very best things, it's like potentially like a thousand times more cost effective. Mm. And he kind of has this series of graphs that just like really delivers this message. And then he's like, okay, and there's like something you can actually do about this. There's the 10% given what we can pledge. And I think I got convinced pretty much immediately, but uh, I think about a week after I signed the pledge and I was the first non-founding member. So after the official launch, I was mm. like, the first person who kind of like signed on who wasn't just one of like toby's friends who yeah um had joined beforehand very cool so did this cause you to immediately kind of shift into effective altruist to start work or did you become kind of a close associate of, of toby and friends at that point or yeah no i started kind of going to the giving we can events and i actually did i guess this was this would have been quite a bit later but i ended up like doing my master's thesis with toby as mm. the supervisor and I remember him like early on telling me all about like replaceability and I arranged a series of talks. We had at one point we experimented with the idea of positive ethics instead of effective altruism. Mm. So it was like the ethics of how to do good rather than like not doing bad, yeah. which is what like most kind of the, with the analogy being positive psychology. Mm. Um, pro- yeah. Because most ethics is about like what you're prohibited from doing right. rather than, rather like, than what, to, what, yeah. what would be good to do. Yeah. In the same way that like a lot of most of psychology is about like avoiding mental illness rather than mm. being more flourishing. Yeah. So this was in 2009. Yeah, so that, that kind of would have then gone on for several years from 2009 onwards. So I think 2009 was the official launch of Giving What We Can. So it was like at the launch party of that. And then there was kind of like groups and opportunities to volunteer. I should say I, I did keep going with climate change stuff for a while through that. And then I think actually my first donation was to the 1010 campaign, which wasn't oh. an EA recommended charity, but it was like it was a advocacy campaign to... I think it was to cut the UK's carbon emissions by 10% by 2010. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're getting quite late in the day to achieve that goal, I suppose. <laughs> well, I think the UK might well have succeeded that in that goal because um, we actually, like, the UK's actually halved its carbon emissions yeah. per capita in the last 10, 20 years, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they, I remember they got a whole like 747 plane and then they got it melted down and turned into dog tags, which said 1010 on them. And they gave, like, they gave them out to their donors. So I got this, oh, wow. like... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's, 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 that's cool. <laughs> um, uh, and then, yeah, I was planning to then study, like, the intersection of climate and economics. Mm, okay. And so I did, like, a summer project in that intersection. I was, like, really considering doing a PhD in that area. And that was one of my career options. Okay. So the idea for 80,000 Hours itself kind of came together in 2011 at some point. Uh, this was all before I was involved. So I actually don't know the story here very well. I know there was some media campaign and some rush to set up the website. But, yeah, maybe you could talk us through that very early stage. Yeah, I think it would have been in 2010. So like a year after the launch of Give It What We Can. And I was thinking about my career decisions. And we just kind of, yeah, I, I guess these ideas, there were all these ideas around like earning to give and replaceability had both, I think they'd already, already been written up by Brian Tomasic right, okay. on his blog already by then. And so these things were kind of being discussed in the like proto-effect altruism community. And then, you know, we just also knew that like, it was pretty obvious implication from giving what we can that if some charities are a thousand times more cost effective than others, then some career paths are presumably a thousand times more impactful than others. Right. Yeah. Um, just like at the very least by working at a more effective charity rather than a less effective charity mm. could increase your impact by a thousand fold. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then also the idea of earning to give comes out very naturally. Another thing I was doing was uh, finance and I was involved with this investing competition around, I can't remember, that maybe 2010, 2011. And I did two internships in with Orbis, which was like a, a value investing company. And then so I was like, I could do earning to give and I could do like the climate economics PhD or yeah, or maybe something else. 
And um, these were different career paths that you were kind of weighing yeah, up and trying to figure yeah. out which one would be right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that was that, that thinking. And then so at one of these Give Out We Can like committee meetings, mm. I was like, oh, I was thinking of giving a talk about which career is highest impact. And Will said, oh, I was thinking of giving the exact same talk. Yeah. So we like wrote the talk together. Nice, okay. That was, I think we, I remember us practicing it in my, in my room in Balliol. Yeah. Um, you're just like also the college that Toby came from. So it's like, I think Balliol has <laughs> like a special like EA claim. Um, Hasn't it also produced a ridiculous number of prime ministers? Oh, well, there's that, that too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> including Boris. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> the fourth one. For better or worse. Um, how did the talk go? Actually, what was in the talk? It was, yeah, you so you so only this... would have had like a few days, I guess, to put this no, together? No, no. This, was we it probably put this together time. over like a month or something. Okay. Just like as a side project while we were studying. Yeah. So the, I think that the original first ever talk is on YouTube. And um, the first section is like basically an argument for why earning to give could be much higher impact than working directly in a nonprofit. And Will gave that section and he also talked about how he'd decided to give away all of his money above. I think it's 20,000 post-tax inflation adjusted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second half of the talk, which no one remembered was given by me, but that was where I talked about like, could there be things even higher impact than earning to give? And I said like, definitely. Yeah. Um, for instance, like we talked about government and policy, uh, we talked about how, like, by being a multiplayer, you could do more and, like, research as well. I think those were the four big parts I need to give research, government policy, advocacy. So that would have been February 2011. So, yeah, it was definitely never about earning to give only just from the start. But there was just this very memorable first section where we mm. kind of say there's this new path and it seems like maybe better than what people can conventionally think of as ethical careers. Yeah. So that was, like, the really sticky bit. Yeah. And then I think Will then went on and gave this talk, like, at a lot of different universities. I see. But... Yeah, the very first talk was also the most important one because, yeah, I guess we've told this story before, but mm. there was like maybe like 20, 25 people in the audience. And depending on how you count it, maybe like six of them totally changed their careers. And now two of those people work at 8,000 hours now, <laughs> yeah. which is Roman and Habiba. Yeah. And then a group of others, which was Richard Batty, Matt Gibb, Robbie Shade. I think it was Richard Batty who came up to Will after and was like, mm. you should start an organization about this. Yeah. And so those three and Will and possibly some others I was forgetting, but at least that group of four then started what was called High Impact Careers over that summer. So that was like February, and then over the next few months, 80,000 hours were started, or yeah, High Impact Careers were started. Okay, so at that stage it was called High Impact Careers. Yeah. Um, yeah, why was it called that? It was, I suppose it's well, <laughs> very natural. Very, just descriptive. <laughs> yeah, I see, right, right, right. I mean, that's more <laughs> of a traditional effect altruism org name, yeah, isn't just it? Just like, do the really bland, like... Exact description yeah. of what it does, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Shrimp Welfare Project, yeah. Uh, be a classic, classic new example. You've been going a lot about shrimp welfare recently. Yeah. I feel like this is some kind of... <laughs> <laughs> just a personal passion of mine. Okay, so I know there's at some point... You guys did a publicity campaign where you were trying to get in the media, or maybe the media came to you. Uh, what did, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so I guess the Oxford term, I kind of like was a bit checked out for a few months, but then towards the end of the summer, maybe August, September, I got back involved and then became the CEO, though I mean, didn't really, I don't know if that is even my title, but anyway, it was kind of like I was like the, responsible for yeah. it. And so we, yeah, we tried to get lots of people signed up at the Freshers' Fair at Oxford. Mm. And I think that was actually when we made our kind of like most aggressive promotional materials where we had like I think we had maybe a poster of like doctor and a banker being mm. like who has more impact yeah and we also made these little like postcards so one which is like loads of stick people on them in different bright colors yeah um, and I think one I think the best one said like 
one life saved, you're a hero or something. A million lives saved is a statistic, mm. which is like the reverse of the, um, yeah. the <laughs> Stalin quote, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it is Stalin. Was it? Yeah. Uh, one, one, one life is a tragedy. A million lives is a statistic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just imagining those materials and how much they must have wound people up. Yeah, so did we did. did we reaction? definitely did get people just coming up and being like, "What?" Like, just really, really <laughs> negative about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we also got people who were really interested and like, "Oh, mm. this makes total sense." So yeah. there was like a lot of people still signing up. We were giving talks and they were well attended, and people mm. were like saying they were changing their careers. And yeah, I mean, I, I around that time I hated the name, so we started a process to figure out a new name. Yeah. And yeah, that was like. One thing I would say about like, every decision to name an org I've been involved with has been mm. super painful. So <laughs> I recommend avoiding it at all costs. But yeah, we did a bunch of brainstorming, like they all sucked. And then I think the actual suggestion, I think it was this guy called Tom who was kind of helping out really early on. And he mm. suggested 70,000 hours, which was the opening of a paper Will had written, a philosophy mm. paper where he lays out the arguments for earning to give and it starts the opening line is you have about 70,000 hours in your career. So he's like, what about 70,000 hours? And I guess we, I think we pretty much immediately liked that name. So we put yeah. it on the list, voted, it won. And then I think I asked a bunch of people like including like a poetry professor friend. Okay. Yeah. And like, is 70,000 hours or 80,000 hours better? And yeah. he was like, no, definitely 80,000 hours. Like it's just the rhythm is so much like 70,000 70, hours. It's much yeah. harder to say. 80,000. Yeah. yeah. And like, yeah. I don't know, it's just the kind of round number is nice. Totally. Um, yeah. So we like quick, and we realized that like I think the maths actually maybe does round up to eighty thousand hours. It depends on exactly which country and <laughs> <laughs> what age you retire. <laughs> yeah. So we did that, and Will then actually edited the philosophy paper to open with <laughs> you have eighty thousand hours because it's gonna have to retract it and resubmit. <laughs> um, nice. Okay. So yeah. This is why you've always got to keep a poet around or maintain a diverse <laughs> friendship group of people with different skills. Um, okay, so this is, I guess, did you name it in early 2011 or so? This would have been the autumn of 2011. 2011, okay. Like October or something. Yeah. So are we getting up to the uh, to the publicity campaign uh, and, and the rush to create a website? Yeah, so that was November. Yeah, I guess one thing that 8,000 Hours benefited a lot from was giving what we can, kind of having been there and been a few steps ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So giving what we can had got tons of press early by basically being like Oxford academics giving away all their money. The mm. Oxford University press media person had helped them do a press release yeah. and helped them get all that coverage. So we were just like, okay, well, let's use the same playbook, 30,000 hours. So Will had his philosophy paper about earning to give. We were like, this can be a news story. The Oxford University press service might help us promote it. Yeah, And like, basically that worked. I mean, yeah, I think there might be a story that I don't know all the details of, but like, Neil kind of like made sure he like bumped into <laughs> the press um, right. officer guy like at the pub okay and pitched it to him <laughs> <laughs> this is Neil Bauman who yeah. uh someone who got involved quite early uh and yeah uh, very, very now works early, at 80,000 yeah. hours yeah. yeah no I mean yeah Neil did a lot to get like CEA going in the early days yeah and had like a ton of hustle like He'd advised the president of the Maldives on climate change and like set up a think tank while he was a grad student. Yeah, yeah, he had, he had a lot of things on the boil. Okay, so what, what did the, what was the story though for the for, for the press here? Because I guess it's, it's so it clearer. Was space, it was supposed yeah. like the message of this like earning to give could be higher impact than traditional ethical careers. Uh, okay, just the, what, what this philosophy paper was about. It was just like yeah. Oxford Academics says like bankers could do more good than the charity workers or doctors if right. you know, if they donate the money. And yeah, I mean that just like really worked and the press lapped it up yeah will got onto the bbc 
uh, Radio 4 Today program, which mm. is like pretty much one of the biggest radio shows in the UK. Uh, yeah. A couple of million listeners at least. Wow. Okay. Um, I guess that would have been terrifying at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're used to speaking to rooms with dozens of people. Yeah, no, I mean, we were definitely like prepping well a lot. And the way it happened is, you know, I think we got this opportunity and it was like, well, this is like, I think it was going to be a week out and then something happened. So it was just like two days out because it was kind of like, well, actually, no, we want to like shuffle it around. So it's going to be like Tuesday. Okay. And we didn't have a website or anything. So that's when we ended up basically just doing an all nighter to write mm. and like put up the whole website from scratch. We'd like written a little bit before, but basically okay. like we're a long way from yeah. uh, it being up. And didn't you have an issue? I think that you registered the domain so uh, so just before the interview going out that some people couldn't even get there because it hadn't reached the, the the address hadn't reached the DNS servers. Yeah, I mean, or at least it was it was launched so last minute. Yeah, but, I mean, it takes a while to get work. ranked in Google. Right, so right. There, so there was people literally searching eighty thousand hours and couldn't find <laughs> wasn't us. Wasn't there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, what what stuff was on the website at that stage? Yeah, I mean, you can probably see that in web archive oh god we shouldn't be encouraging people to go and look there <laughs> it's dangerous i mean the but very maybe, first maybe. version it was like very basic but mm. i mean it would have it probably would have had some stuff about just like the arguments for mm. earning to give and a link to the paper maybe yeah and then i think it might have meant it probably had mini profiles on some of the other high impact careers okay. and then i think it might have had a couple of examples of people okay. like mini user stories yeah but yeah that was like a very basic page did this super wind people up? I'm imagining, I mean, that the whole message is just, has always divided people a lot. The idea that a bankers, especially then, this was right after the financial yeah, crisis. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> you're hitching your wagon to the most controversial and hated group in society. <laughs> I mean, it definitely did wind people up a bit. And we had a bunch of other media coverage. So there was like a, I think there was a Wall Street Journal article and mm. Will maybe went on like something like CNBC. Okay. A couple yeah. of like pretty big. Pretty big shows. Pretty big shows just on the back of this. So that did like really get us out there. Mm. But yeah, it meant that for years afterwards, yeah. we were really so This is our original sin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people, yeah. I think sometimes people still, even to this day, think that, yeah, 80,000 hours is about earning to give. Um, yeah, it has, it has become much less. Much less. The last few years, yeah. But um, yeah. even well, well till like 2015, 2016, which, I mean, was a big cost. I think, I mean, it's written up as a mistake on our mistakes page. I think the, the strongest case for it being a mistake is just that maybe we could have basically got all those benefits without the costs because mm. we could have still had earning to give as one of the options and we could have still given the talk on university campuses. Yeah. But we could have slightly toned down the controversy. I think maybe the bigger thing would have just been not doing the media. Mm. Like, I think the media just really shapes people's impressions a lot, yeah. but doesn't actually generate that many, like, interested people who are seriously going to do this. Yeah. And we could have totally done all of those university talks without having the media coverage. Yeah, did you suspect that you might regret this at the time? Did anyone realize, oh my, in like eight years, people are going to think we're just about earning to give and we'll have to... Yeah, well, I, I think it was more sticky than I expected. Yeah, okay. Um, and I, guess, I think I, I probably just... under-anticipated as well, just like, because our actual message was always more nuanced. I think I just also was over-optimistic about how much people would only remember the simplest possible version. Yeah. And I think a lot of the things people were hating was like, they didn't even quite get the idea that we were saying that you had to donate like half your income. <laughs> right. Okay. They're just thinking like, oh, like bankers are generally higher impact. Like some people would even misunderstand it on that level. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I suppose that is understandable. The, the, the journalist garbles it and then the person kind of spends 30 seconds just scanning their eyes across an article and they're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So were you at that, at that stage committed to turning the idea into an organization and hiring people and... Um, no, so that, would, that was my fourth year at university. Okay, yeah. And so then in this kind of, after the media thing, the main thing that we were doing was more talks. And then we started a blog. 
and started to like build up a decent amount of um views like i think we were getting like thousands of views per post at that point okay yeah um this was just covering all kinds of different topics related to careers and impact and so on. Yeah, I mean, you know, we actually talked about, for instance, like a lot of the kind of heuristics and biases stuff and mm. how that could apply to careers. Yeah. And that was like much more new back then. So that did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. That was very in vogue around that time. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, Kahneman was, uh, yeah, making a, making a splash. Well, this, this would have even been like decently before Thinking Fast and Slow, I think. So like these ideas were just really not well known. Yeah. 80,000 hours at some point started uh, kind of pledged to do to do good with your career, kind of like... Yeah, kind of like no, I mean, we exactly. Have. We were just copying everything we can again. Yeah. So we had, yeah, we had an online community where you could sign up and be like, I pledge to have a high-impact career. I think for a while we had a 10% pledge, which is like 10% of time or money towards doing the most good. And then I think maybe we simplified it to just like, I pledge to like try to lead a high-impact career. Yeah. Uh, uh, did we ever keep a list of all the people who made that pledge? We've got to go back and uh, <laughs> see who's been naughty and nice. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it should be possible to get hold of that yeah. data somewhere. Okay, yeah, talk, talk a bit about how things developed after, after the media came in. Yeah, so yeah, so we were doing the blog and I was doing it, working on it part-time. And I guess I started to get gradually less motivated by like academics and studying at that point because mm. it's just like 80,000 hours is more exciting. So I kind of like scraped by my fourth year more. But like just at the minimum I needed yeah. <laughs> to get the grades I wanted. And then, yeah, then I had this big career decision. Like, should I continue with 80,000 hours after I graduated or do one of the other two options, which we mentioned? So that would be like investing and earning to give or academia. And yeah, I think I remember we had like these CEA retreats where we'd go out to was that weird, like kind of castle slash school. The one in, the one in Wales? Yeah, I think Atlantic so. College. Yeah, Atlantic yeah. College. And I remember being back on the train, like talking about it with Will and Neil, mm. like standing in the corridor, like which one I should do. Yeah. And I remember talking yeah. about it with my parents. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was definitely found it a difficult decision, though I think in the end it felt pretty clear that I should do 80,000 hours. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, that's kind of what everyone was recommending. Do your yeah. parents have any preference for you to maybe do something? So you'd be signing up to, I, I don't know whether there was any money around at the time. The organization didn't exist. EA didn't have a name then, or maybe it had only just the, the, the name had been coined. Did your yeah, parents have name, any reservations so about it? The name was coined in 2011. Okay. And that was part of the process of setting up CEA. So I think CEA right. would have been existing by then. And then, yeah, CEA was like hiring its first five staff members. Yeah. Who were going to start in like July 2012. Yeah. And I ended up being one of those first five. So yeah. they, they were hiring a bunch of people as well. So it wasn't, it wouldn't have just been like just me doing everything. It was like CA exists. They're hiring people. There's like a charity. Yeah. Yeah. So did anyone recommend that you not do this? Yeah, I don't think so. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, there wouldn't have been an, I think there were people who would have been like unsure or just didn't want to take a stance, mm. but I don't remember anyone being like, no, this seems like a mistake. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's great that you had people who were willing to encourage you to, uh, to take a, take, take a <laughs> risk. I, I think very often we, we're encouraging people to be a bit more entrepreneurial and, and risk-taking in their careers. And you get a lot of pushback from friends and family who are concerned about someone's uh, well-being or concerned about their status and career prospects in the long term. Yeah, it was interesting. So, I mean, I think my mother has definitely been concerned about that. But the thing she's been most concerned about is actually the given we can pledge. Oh, right. Because she's like, you know, how could, you know, how will we be able to like afford to live? And like, what happens if you have kids, if you're I giving see. 10%? And I think, I don't remember the same thing coming up about the job. That's so interesting because the job would have... Uh, <laughs> it's a much bigger sacrifice. Much bigger yeah. sacrifice in terms of salary. Yeah. It's like probably uh, re reducing it more by like 80% <laughs> rather than 10%. But I think that is a good 
thing about the giving what you can pledge is it seems like a lot to people, but people routinely take careers where they'll earn half as much as another career. No one's like, oh my God, how could you possibly consider doing that? Yeah, that is that is really interesting. I'll have to think it's about why, why it is. People just have these in like different reference classes somehow. It's like right. becoming a teacher is like a normal thing to do or working for a charity is like right. a normal thing to do. And it, But giving 10% is weird. Yeah. Okay. Even right, though right. like the first is actually maybe like could easily be a 75% salary. <laughs> Yeah, I should have more respect for teachers and the, the salary sacrifice they make, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I think one one thing now, now looking back, I could have easily made a mistake on was I didn't, we didn't really have the idea of career capital at that point. So I was just literally thinking in terms of like, which one would be highest impact over the next five or 10 years or something like that. Um, yeah. And so I was just basically like, oh, 80,000 hours seems higher impact because of the multiplier argument, like could get more than one person willing to give if I do this. Another kind of bit of reasoning was like, Matt Wage was literally considering like working at CEA to run the life you can save or mm. going to Jane Street. And we kind of realized that like Matt's earnings would be higher than mine, mm. but it seemed like I was a better fit for like entrepreneurial running the thing. Yeah. So there was almost this like trade where it was like Matt would go to Jane Street and it would be one of the early donors to CEA, which mm. he, he he was and yeah. like basically pay for several staff members. It was a comparative advantage thing to some degree. Yeah. Where, yeah one person could bring home the bacon and other, other people could then spend the money. Yeah. But then I think I was kind of lucky that I think I did end up getting better career capital from 80,000 hours than I would have from the other two parts, even mm. though I just wasn't really thinking about it. Where the kind of heuristic is just like, if you can do something like interesting and entrepreneurial, you often get a, like a lot of career capital from that. Totally. It is so funny that the idea of career capital, this idea of, well, an important thing that you should do early in your career is put yourself in a better position to do things later in your <laughs> career. Uh, make sure that your career keeps progressing in a sense. Like, How could that not be on our radar? But it's very easy for it not to be. I think, in fact, for most young people, it kind of, they, they just don't really think about that in concrete terms until it's pointed out. I mean, I guess yeah. some do, but... I think almost also the idea of like having it as a quantity or something mm. like somehow makes it more possible to somehow reason about it. Because yeah. you're kind of like, well, I could be like building like career capital in this path or I could be having impact. And then I want to like do the thing that lets me get, get the best of both over the long term. Yeah. Somehow that like crystallizes it more than just something very generic like oh, you should like get skills or something like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I guess because people would have a sense that it's better to be in a job where you might get promoted more or something like that. But then it's hard to integrate that into the decision uh, without making it more, more precise, exactly all the kinds of career capital and how they might trade off. Yeah. But then, I mean, the problem with career capital is that then people associate it with just the kind of most obvious credentials. Mm. So I think if I'd known about the concept of career capital, then it might have made me more keen to do finance or PhD. Because I'd be right. like, well, that's really clear career capital. But actually, I think I got better career capital from 80,000 hours. So I kind of like was making a double mistake that cancelled out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's fortuitous. <laughs> what was the plan for 80,000 hours? I guess we know how things have turned out, but was the vision very different back then? Well, yeah, like a lot of entrepreneurs, we were just kind of doing like all types of different stuff. Mm. Um, we didn't really, yeah, we were super unfocused. And Did you think yeah. of that as a deliberate decision or was that, that's just what happens when uh, you don't make focus your main focus? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to stay focused, even if you're constantly trying, it's yeah. just, you tend to end up unfocused. But yeah, I think it's maybe, I mean, I think maybe very early on, it can be good to just be basically trying a bunch of things and seeing what sticks. Mm. And so we were in that phase. But then I, I knew early on that, so I think that summer, I was already like, we need to be more focused. Mm. And so one of the decisions we made very early was, we were kind of part conceiving ourselves almost as like an advocacy campaign or like a moral campaign or something mm. where we're like, we wanted to spread these ideas in society and just get them out there and convince people of them, which was a bit, maybe a bit more like the Give It We Can kind of model where it's like giving 10%. It's kind of like this thing we want to, the norm we want to promote. Yeah. 
But then like another thing we were doing is kind of like more like careers advice, hmm. which was like, I kind of saw that as giving people information to help them have more impact. And we decided to focus on that second paradigm. So it's more research heavy than, than advocacy heavy. Well, not necessarily research, but more the framing trying to be like, people already want to have impact. We're giving them information to help them have more right. impact and being like this kind of like supportive, useful resource. I see. Rather than like, we're out there trying to convince people to give 10% or to do high impact careers or to like take earning to give seriously. Or... So it's like people already want to reduce their carbon emissions. We just want to inform them more about how to do that best uh, is more the model rather than like beating people over the head to get them to worry more about climate change. Yeah, which I think is a really good frame for EA as a whole. And that's yeah. the one I try to stay within. It's so easy to start thinking like, oh, we need to like convince people, like turn, make people into EAs, like recruit people. But yeah. I tried to see, think of it more. It's like lots of people want to do good. Yeah. Um, there's they this have enormous like, untapped yeah. or there's enormous yeah. undertapped potential. Yeah. And like the existing advice and research is really bad. And like people mm. could just have like a hundred times more impact and they would want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll yeah. like you for it rather than feel like they're being battered being... over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the idea was to provide information. What was the initial plan for how to do that? At yeah. the time, did you feel like the resources that you had or the advice you had was woefully in in insufficient? Well, you know, we had had a lot of traction in terms of people actually seeming to say they've like made big changes to their career on the base of these ideas. So yeah. I think we already knew at that point that we had some powerful ideas. Yeah. And yeah, with what we're actually doing about it, I think I remember being a big proponent of online content from the start and you know, I think I kind of tried to convince Give It We Can to like start a blog and I was kind of, I had this intuition that like, it's more scalable to have online content and you mm. can just build up a following and that would do more than just giving these in-person talks. But I think, yeah, Give It We Can kind of didn't quite bite on that at that time. So then 80,000 Hours kind of became more focused more on, heavy. so that's why I said like one of the first things we did was a blog and starting to build up page rank and following. And so, yeah, I think there was an early emphasis on online content, but then we were probably still doing a bunch of talks and then we would also do one-on-ones with people, especially people who we met at the talks who seemed really interested, but also people who'd come in through the website. So I think maybe very early on, it would have just been like, here's like some articles about our most important ideas and maybe a thing where you could get in touch with us for one-on-one -on -one advice. Right. And then in practice, we we're doing a bunch of talks and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. maybe is, is it worth scanning like all of the things that might have been going on? Because this will be, uh, or, or this like very general issue of how much should you focus? I guess, especially early on in a project where you don't know what stuff is going to work. This is just a problem that almost every entrepreneur faces. Mm. The, you start getting your ideas out there or people hear about you and then they just start throwing opportunities to do stuff at you uh, in a way that can just make you even like less focused than you, uh, than you were before. Yeah. Sometimes you do conversations with people about their career. There's writing, writing the blog, there's doing media and there's doing talks. And the website had like a lot of different things because we'd mm. write about like heuristics and biases applied to careers and we'd have career profiles and we'd... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... And the membership program. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the membership program, yeah. And I guess, were you getting interns around that time? Well, that, I think that was actually the... When you say being unfocused, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me was like, we just hired like loads of interns. Right. <laughs> I think that summer we maybe had like three or four interns. Yeah. And they wanted a lot of autonomy over what they were doing. So I think one person was writing this long report about why moral philosophy could be a really high impact career path. Mm. Is that Nabel? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember we, that. We actually ended up like never even publishing it, but we <laughs> put like a lot of work into it. Um, the basic argument being something like, you know, just Peter Singer alone has saved so many lives that if you divide that through by the number of moral philosophers, oh, wow. like... <laughs> They're good on so, average. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, that's, that's clever. Even, yeah. yeah, but even if you take like the whole rest of philosophy as being like zero value. Yeah. Uh, we we got to go, we got to go away and find that on Drive. Or maybe, maybe that's on Dropbox. Uh, maybe that didn't even make it onto Google Drive. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, that should be recoverable. 
Yeah, and then like Ilan, who was then like really into animal advocacy, mm. and he actually spent his internship basically setting up ACE. Yeah, animal charity evaluators yeah. now. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was it called that at the time? Or I think it had it... a different name. I'm trying, I'm struggling to remember. But... It was kind of just like eighty thousand hours, but for effective animal advocacy. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then turned into ACE later. Yeah, and I think I think there were some other interns as well doing their own things. Well, so Jess was, like, was doing lots of. Jess was an intern and did lots of great writing for the yeah, blog. Je Jess Waterstone. Yeah, people yeah. could find her early articles. I think they hold up impressively well. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess of the three, she was the one who was kind of like actually delivering on a core program, mm, yeah. <laughs> and the others were kind of just doing <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean, you know, the ACE thing. That's like a good example of being super unfocused. Yeah. Um, I suppose at the time. Well, I, I suppose after six months or a year of that, it did become apparent that. We were both mentally and physically well, I, yeah, and as I a think, group, like incredibly scattered. I think it maybe took even less time than that because I think the internships were mostly in the summer. And I think mm. already by the end, we basically like, started cutting down on the number of interns a lot. Yes. But it is interesting how many amazing people came out of the woodwork and came to do internships at that point. So many people who were still involved in accomplishing great stuff today. I wonder whether it might actually have been a, a good program because it was it was like a way of people who were already so excited about this idea that even though it was incredibly undeveloped, they were willing to travel from the US or travel from Canada or whatever, just to come and hang out with people for no money, uh, like yeah, their own we, accommodation. I think maybe yeah. we gave people like small travel grants or something. But. Right. So it, it was kind of a summer camp for people who were already really stoked about these ideas, who were maybe also quite entrepreneurial, potentially, and were willing to go off and do really exciting stuff. And, and many of them did. But I suppose at some point, you do also have to actually focus on the main project. I think there's a good argument to be made along those lines, but then I think you, what you want to do is optimize the thing around that benefit. Right. So maybe so it's there could much, have been an internship org. Yeah, or maybe you just do a much shorter thing, which is like mm. two weeks, and you just get everyone to come to Oxford at the same time. Right. Yeah, that makes and sense. And you just really try to optimize for like meeting everyone, working together, hanging out, helping people with their career plans, like whatever, whatever they want. Yeah. With the idea of like getting people to do stuff later, mm. whereas instead of you're kind of like, no, we're like trying to build this org and then we're trying to kind of like shoehorn people into it but you know they have other stuff they're motivated by and then you end up kind of starting a bunch of random projects to like give them work yeah that's like really slowing you down on your main priority yeah let's talk for a little bit about just what was the general vibe uh in the ea community in the uk and i guess specifically oxford around that time it was very different. I suppose people have talked about parts of this uh, here and there over the years, but the accommodation, like the, the office setup, the salaries, just everything was felt really duct taped together and I guess quite fragile and definitely not very, not necessarily conducive to people being maximally productive. <laughs> I guess, yeah, should we talk about the housing situation first? Yeah, I mean, I guess initially, I think like at least for 80,000 hours, I think Will fundraised maybe like 50 to 100 K dollars. I think that was mostly maybe from Jeff Kaufman and Julia mm. Wise. I think they were some of the first donors to CEA. Yeah. Uh, and then Matt Wage also started donating early, but it wasn't much. So initially we, yeah, the salary was about 15,000 pounds. I think that um, was about the legal minimum that one could pay for a full-time staff member. Yeah. Close to minimum wage. I think after a year or two, we increased it to like the low twenties, but like that wasn't much. And like, for that reason, you know, we put a lot of work actually into finding like cheap housing. Yeah. And I got really lucky and I found this guy who, well, his business card was um, was like historian, art critic, priest. <laughs> and he was just this guy who like had this house in Oxford and he would rent it to grad students kind of as a non-for-profit basis. So it was 500 pounds mm. a month for a two bedroom house. And by like living there, that really made a big difference to being able to live on such a low salary for quite a few years. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I actually mostly worked from home because our office was like so bad that <laughs> that's yeah. how I got around it. But yeah, like the very first office we had was just like a 
balcony in an Oxford College dining hall. So it would kind of like, it was totally open to the dining hall. So every lunch it would be, and dinner time, it would be super noisy because there'd be like loads of, like 200 people all eating below us <laughs> <laughs> while you're trying to work. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that was like mostly just for the summer. And then we, and then I think we just had a bit where we just didn't have an office. So we worked out of like the canteen in a library for a, at least three months or something. Yeah. Um, so, and then, yeah. And then it was only after that that we moved into this tiny, tiny room at the back of an estate agent yeah. off um, in St. Clement's in Oxford. Yeah, that's the progression that I remember. I think the day I showed up, some people were working in this room above a cafe that they'd uh, managed to get them to, to let them hang out in for a while. And then it was, yeah, in, on this row above a dining hall. Uh, and then uh, I think soon after that, that even, we didn't even have that. So then we were just in a general library area yeah. in, in, in some college somewhere, just sitting on tables that happened to be there. Well, I think that was and, social sciences library yeah. yeah the social sciences library right and then uh, after a while yeah we managed to get this maybe worse spot <laughs> at the back of real estate agent we'll stick up some photos to what to what that was like to, people yeah. were you'd have to walk past these real estate agents just to get to your get into the office we must have driven them house. insane because <laughs> there's a lot of people out the, out the back yeah yeah all of these like young interns uh, people who've flown in from all around the world just coming just constantly walking through this estate agent <laughs> So it's basically just like their back room that for some reason they were renting out. Yeah, um, like one of our early donors came when we gave him a tour. And when he like came into the office, his first reaction was, uh, is this legal? Yeah, <laughs> I doubt <laughs> it. Because there's kind of like 10 people or like eight people in this tiny room. And then we, we had him like a meeting space, but that was where the, like the ceiling was so low that you couldn't stand up. Yeah. That was the meeting room. <laughs> <laughs> and it was incredibly poorly lit as well. I'm not sure that had an external... I'm not sure what the ventilation well, was. Well, just windows. <laughs> just, oh, it had windows? Okay. Yeah, the main room had windows, yeah. Okay. But like, just you were saying you showed up, and I remember... So that would have been September. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, Rob, like, I think when you showed up, you are saying you didn't know where you were staying. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. You just came People... and you just had a single suitcase and a suit, which yeah. I guess you didn't wear because we didn't wear suits. Yeah, no, de definitely not. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think at the time that I was landing, there was still an email thread going on debating where I should live, <laughs> where, where I should be allocated. And then you ended up in the famous Gams house. I ended up in this... Which I guess was another, like, kind of landlord who... Almost mm. like helped EA get going because yeah. so many people lived it. So many place. people lived in this house. Uh, yeah, it was kind of the landing place, I guess, when people for many people who first arrived in in, in Oxford. Ken's a lovely guy. <laughs> uh, the house did have some issues, though. I remember very early on when I got there, the the shower, like the ground floor toilet, was completely unusable because the shower was uh, just like dripping through, uh, and so the the room had become incredibly like wet and moldy, and the shower like we couldn't really <laughs> use use the shower properly. So I think people were like going elsewhere in order to have showers. One of the rooms was like not really a normal room. I think it was kind of a converted storage <laughs> storage facility. Uh, we were cramming people in. Anyway, uh, we were poor, but we did have, <laughs> we, we legitimately did have a great time uh, in in in, in that house. A bunch of us who had just gotten there because it was just such an exciting new new era. Yeah, and like there was a lot of people passing through, like not mm. just the interns, but just kind of you know we'd have these retreats and people would come from all over the world who were interested in these ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think another thing about the early days is like. I think it did just feel really clear that it's like these ideas are really important and that was just super motivating. So there was this real sense of like almost just not questioning the situation, just being like, well, we have to do this. Exactly. I yeah. had a lot of that sense. Yeah. It's not, it's not like I ever considered leaving. Yeah. Uh, I, I know what <laughs> I was getting myself into. So yeah, something that is interesting is there was such a diversity of opinion then. It, it was a much smaller group, but just people were all across the board on what kind of problems they thought were most important, what, what concepts they were particularly uh, interested in. But everyone knew, and I think has been it's been shown to be the case, that there was just thinking in this way, thinking in expected value terms, trying to figure out like how you, how you can do the most to help other people 
was just a massively underexplored area. And as soon as you started looking there, you just found all of these amazing, you had all of these great insights and you didn't know exactly where it was going to lead or how it was going to congeal. But uh, I think we were right to be really excited that we'd found just such a fertile area for intellectual exploration and advocacy. Yeah, though, I mean, a bit of the story that people find interesting slightly going in the opposite direction mm. is like, 80,000 hours, and one of the reasons why we started it was mm. to have an org that would focus on accentual risk mm. and could have that prominently among what it did. Okay. Whereas we thought like early giving what we can should remain more focused on, maybe you could still like give to X risk things as part of your pledge, but that mm. wouldn't really be the first thing we talk about. And yeah, so that means that even back in like 2012, there was a group of us, like I remember Neil as well, was very keen on like, we should really be doing something about accentual risk right, yeah. right back then. Yeah, I just remember like, People had very heated discussions about uh, long-termism and existential risk and whether that stuff made sense. It was a very controversial topic among people who are interested in these ideas. And there were lots of people who would very strongly advocate for a more give-well-focused view. Just similar conversations to what we have now, although I think uh, much less developed or the ideas were a lot more scattershot. Yeah, so there was a group of us who were very excited about existential risks. But at the time, there were people who were extremely uh, excited about animal stuff, people who were extremely excited about, about Gibwa, people who were excited about other aspects of global health and development. There were people who were, thought it was radically important that we immediately try to grow the movement as much as possible because of this kind of multiplier argument that, uh, and admittedly, it was growing at a very rapid percentage pace at that point. So people had very strong views of, about all kinds of different topics. And yet somehow we did manage to, to, to get along and, uh, and produce something useful out of it. One other example of a debate we had then was just, should we talk about effective altruism directly? Mm, because mm. early on, we just conceived of it as an internal facing name, just to name CEA the org. And then it kind of started to catch on. But like, even then, there was this proposal that we got into this like pretty heated debate about to start a group of just EA first local groups around the world. Mm. So it's got, it was called Think, so the high impact network, ah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, I, I was like a big person on the side against that because I was like, right. Well, firstly, the, the idea was that people who like weren't in the community yet would be given a bunch of material so they could present the like material themselves. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like do-it-yourself local group mm -hmm. materials. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is going to produce like low-quality events, which I think was kind of indicated. Okay. Uh, it's like better to focus on high-quality online content that you can make sure is really good rather yeah. than having like lots of like badly done groups. Yeah. But then I was also like, EA is too abstract to promote directly, <laughs> <laughs> um, which right. I think like in some ways I think kind of is true, and I think. A huge problem that EA has had over the last 10 years is people just understand it as like particular list of like, you should do these actions, yeah. such as donate 10%, malaria charities, RCT back to charity, mm. or like crazy AI stuff. And like EA just gets identified as like the list of recommendations mm. rather than the way of thinking that it actually is. And that's because like communicating a way of thinking is a super abstract thing. And yeah, it takes uh, a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think I was like kind of right about that being a big downside, but looking back, maybe actually should have we kind of realized that EA was the thing taking off mm. fairly early. And so I, I can't remember which year this was, but maybe 2013, 2014, the CEA started Effective Altruism Outreach, mm. which yep. is another new project whose aim was just to promote EA directly. Mm. But then, you know, we kept on with Given We Can because we just thought like it's too abstract. Given We Can is a much, much more concrete thing. And again, like 80,000 hours, it's like high impact careers. That's kind of an existing thing that we can hang everything on. But I think maybe a mistake I made was like not updating even quicker to EA being the central thing. Yeah. And like now looking back, it's a bit odd that in a sense, like CEA ended up without a kind of content team writing about effective altruism and all the kind of writery capacity ended up on 80,000 hours writing about high impact careers. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting that there never really was an attempt to create a research team that would work on EA specific or EA 
other than being through either the vehicle of careers or giving. I guess, so you had GiveWell working on a particular kind of well, giving. That, yeah, that kind of became Global Priorities. I see. So there was a Global Priorities project, mm. which was another early CEA thing. And like, again, clearly like CEA, we set up way too many charities, I mm. think, looking back, like every good person we had would end up kind of running their own thing. Whereas mm. I think it's like often a lot better to just have like three amazing co-founders do one thing and like grow that as much as it can and then, then move on to the new thing yeah. rather than kind of spread out over lots of different projects. Yeah. But yeah, we yeah, set we up the Global Priorities Project, which did then eventually turn into the Global Priorities Institute or was like an influence on that, which is has, is now really successful. Yeah, it's now a big deal and is uh, an actual institute at Oxford with, with lots of academics uh, tackling these questions in, uh, with a level of rigor that we never could have uh, <laughs> could have possibly brought to the table in 2013. Yeah, so interestingly, ended up so far has mainly focused on long-termism rather than mm. central EA stuff itself. Mm. So a lot of the most central EA things, like how much do interventions differ in effectiveness? Like how should we correct for aggression to the mean? Even like how much do causes differ in effectiveness? Like very central EA questions. Or even just like, how do we compare causes beyond INT? Like that actually hasn't really had any still much yeah. rigorous research done on it. That's so true. I guess that slightly falls within our remit to a degree, and, and I guess well, Open Phil has ended a up research doing... team either. No, right, yeah. exactly, yeah. But I'm thinking, if people were looking from the outside, who would they say should do this? Maybe they would have thought we maybe should be doing it. Perhaps they thought that Open Phil should be doing it. Uh, I mean, I'm still Phil optimistic that GPI will end mm. up with a kind of EA Foundation's research stream as well as the long-termism stream. Yeah, but I don't know what their current plans are on that. Yeah. Okay. So that's a bit about the vibe and the, and the conditions that people were, were living with in Oxford uh, back then. How did the plan for what 80,000 hours would do and what we were going to recommend kind of develop over, over time? One thing is now looking back quite striking is I think very early we kind of converged on this idea of like online content plus one-on-one. -on -one. And I kind of still see that now as the core of 80,000 hours today. And I remember, I, I think I saw this, I wrote, read this business strategy that I wrote in 2013 when we were mm -hmm. doing fundraising. Yeah. And I actually thought it's like really holds up. It's like pretty similar to our strategy now. Yeah. In fact, in some ways it was like more punchy than like <laughs> recent documents. I was like, oh, this is like pretty compelling. Yeah, just, just copy and paste that into the <laughs> 2022 plan. Yeah, so I, I guess I almost don't know what the lesson is from that, but like mm. in a sense we did hit on the thing, but then we kind of had a, still quite a lot of self-doubt. So in a way we didn't actually double down on that. In fact, even until it's only really been 2020 when we just became really confident on doubling down and just fully scaling up the one-on-one -on -one advice. Yeah, what were we uncertain about and what were we yeah, having self-doubt about uh, back in that Well, time? in the first few years, it was just like, is this going to be cost-effective? Like, can we change, really change people's plans? Uh, Not yeah. just through like Will talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, but kind of like as an org. Yeah. And yeah, we basically had this list of people who said they'd been influenced by us and seemed cool. Like in reality, you know, we had pretty like, those are super messy counterfactuals. So you could have really debated yeah. all those cases. And then there was a kind of just also like, what actually is our advice going to be? And, you know, figuring out things like career capital and like, when do we say that? And the kind of overall framework is pretty hard to figure out. And like, for instance, like Holden just recently has criticized us for like, he's kind of proposed an alternative framework, which is like, okay, is your worldview the most important century? If so, then just figure out your aptitude from this list of 10 aptitudes and frame it more in terms of like, what could you be amazing at? Whereas 80,000 hours tends to be a little bit more like, okay, what are the most important problems? What are the best things to do about them? And then how could you kind of target those in a career path over the long term? Yeah, I see. Things like just how do you compare careers? What, like, what are the concepts that we use? Like, do we use career capital, neglectedness, problem selection, yeah. all these concepts? So there was kind of like that being solidified. And then I guess just a bit of like, can we actually kind of 
deliver these programs. But then, yeah, like around 2015, we decided that we'd kind of done that stage. And that's when we started trying to get into Y Combinator. Mm. We applied to Y Combinator twice. So I think maybe the first application was in 2014. Yeah. And we got turned down. But then we were kind of like, we had some discussions with uh, YC partners so that it was super helpful. And mm. actually, especially Kate Corteau, who was the nonprofit partner, kind of like we stayed in touch with her and we figured out like what would be needed to get into YC, like what would we need to do? And then by summer 2015, we got in. And so we kind of saw that symbolically as like, we now think we have like a working model. People will actually change careers. We have some advice. That's the stuff we're going to say. And we're like delivering this. And now we can like scale that up a bunch more. Yeah. How did you first get excited about Y Combinator and the, and the tech scene and all of that? Um, well, they started taking, I think the first ever nonprofit was in, maybe it was 2013, 2014. So that was Watsi. Yeah. yeah. And then they like did a batch where they kind of had an official call for nonprofits. And mm. I think that got passed to us by more than one person just okay. being like, this might be a good fit for you. Yeah. I see. And then, well, well, one thing I did was then like watch a bunch of their, like read Paul Graham's essays. Mm. They had this great, like how to start a startup series of YouTube videos that I found yeah. super useful. Yeah. And so I was kind of convinced that this would be really useful. Mm. Um, and so then, then I was saying like, it was almost like a year long project to get in after we like applied and then had to kind of like figure out what is the core of what we're doing? How can we show that it's really scalable? Yeah. How can we have like a founding team that's convincing enough? Yeah. What was the hiring philosophy then? Because uh, I guess 80,000 hours has hired reasonably slowly. Uh, did, did that begin mm. at a particular time? Yeah, I can't remember exactly when we, I mean, yeah, I knew that having a really high bar for hiring was important mm. pretty early. And so we were definitely hiring slowly from early, like especially once we stopped the internship program. Then I think we hired Roman. And then it would have just been like me and Roman as the mm. only full-time employees just on any thousand hours. Yeah. I think for, for a while a until, yeah, until Peter Hartree joined. Yeah. So we were definitely going pretty slowly. But then that was one of the big things I learned from YC was like, they made me way less keen on hiring. And that was like one of the things that really surprised us about it was just they were like, basically their philosophy is like, before you have product market fit, just don't hire. And then once you have product market fit, maybe then you like hire as quickly as possible. But this is kind of like two regimes thing. Yeah. And the argument was like, before you have product market fit, the most important thing is getting to product market fit. Hiring people will actually slow you down because it basically then means you're spending all your time on management rather than figuring out product market fit, which is usually something that only the founders are really good at. Yeah. And so you can easily like grind to a halt while at the same time you've like five X your expenses. So you've like got now only 20% as much time to figure out product market fit before you're done. Right. And that's like a really big failure mode for a lot of startups. I guess but, you yeah. can also end up hiring people who are specialized in doing something that you're going to decide you don't want to do very yeah. quickly because <laughs> you're trying to figure out what the product even is. Yeah. I mean, I think that's another big thing is just like in a startup, you just want a small, very generally competent, well-coordinated team who can like easily switch between things. Yeah. And that kind of, in a sense, that means you need to hold a very high bar on those dimensions. And I think that's also, I don't know, it's just so easy to, I think there's actually like a lot of mistakes in this area. And I see this with a lot of young entrepreneurs or like young people getting into the community. There's just this very like, it almost seems so obvious that like, if you hire more people, you will get more done. <laughs> and also there's this very compelling illusion that like, I should be able to get money, pay for services, and mm. people will like do the things that I want and pay for. And there should be like experts in things like 
management and like marketing mm. and running orgs and like the way to do a lot of stuff is to hire a bunch of these experts in these things and get them to like do these things yeah and that just almost seems to just not how things work in the real world yeah um, it's a bit surprising even it is now, surprising it, yeah when you say yeah it isn't like that so the idea that you're you're someone who uh, thinks you know i have good ideas about effective altruism and i want to write those up and share them but i'll hire someone else to manage the project or i'll hire someone who's an expert in operations it's surprisingly shockingly hard to just delegate all of that stuff in, at an early stage yeah, and I'm I'm kind of worried that I'm not really going to convince anyone because it's it's almost still like quite hard to say exactly what goes wrong. But yeah, I think one big thing that goes wrong, and this is going to sound very arrogant, but just like there's kind of general level of like professionals doing stuff. Like mm. most things are just done badly in the world. <laughs> yeah, or people and muddle so, through yeah. with a like tolerable yeah. level of goodness. Yeah. yeah. So like you know we've something like your bookkeeping is on the end of things that's relatively easy to outsource because that's a very like well defined thing that there's people who are out there and they do bookkeeping mm. but we've had it found it really hard to not have our books be like totally fucked up by people we've hired to do bookkeeping yeah that is a really i mean i think i think probably we, we got to accept some of the some of the blame there but i mean but, but that speaks to the fact that uh you're part of the process of delegating the thing of like defining the task and passing and like deciding who's going to do it and if you don't know how to do that then yeah you're going to mess that up <laughs> no, i think that's a really big part of it is like it's very hard to hire someone to do something that you don't know how to do yeah and that's because like you can't even judge how good the person is. And it's very hard for you to package things well in a form that's like easy to delegate if you like, mm. just it's just like a, m a mystery to you. Yeah. Uh, so that's just early on, it's just really good to just do all the stuff yourself for a while until you at least learn like basic, like the very rough outlines of how it works. Yeah. Um, I, guess, I think that might even be true of bookkeeping potentially, that you want to like set up the basic structure of the bookkeeping yeah. so that it makes sense given what you're trying to do. Uh, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of what happened in the end is just like people at CEA, did a lot of the like setting up financial systems ourselves. Yeah. And like now we have it kind of semi outsourced, but that like was a thing that took several years of uh, figuring things out ourselves and then like finding good people, like overseeing them well. Yeah. Yeah. I remember like you've definitely kind of like unfucked ATK's books <laughs> <laughs> on more right. than one occasion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and imagining someone doing it. Well, that, that's a great example where, so it's it's bizarre how involved I was in the finances of 80,000 hours <laughs> and, and until until very recently. It's because I was working on the operations before uh, for the broader organization uh, before I came to work at 80,000 hours. Well, but, but you're also just very good at spreadsheets. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just like that, spot more mistakes than most people. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, it is true that it can be remarkably challenging to make uh, a budget in a spreadsheet without introducing massive... Uh, <laughs> mathematical errors that if you don't know how those uh, can appear then you can just end up with completely wrong numbers and report wrong numbers and I've seen that happening all the time uh, you have to be remarkably careful and another amazing thing is how, whenever I would try to get someone else to handle it if they weren't deeply embedded within 80,000 hours then they wouldn't notice that it particular mm. line items make no sense because like how could we have spent this much money on that because that doesn't even exist when you're inside a project you can you understand the budget and the finances just intuitively by by, by, by scanning them uh, you spot the errors and you can see how, how it should roughly be, be organized but as soon as you delegate it to someone who's not in the office with you yeah <laughs> chaos begins yeah. no I think that's another really good example of why like having a, a small super dedicated super hardworking generally competent team like four people it's really po possible to achieve like what would take like 20 or 30 people mm. otherwise. And it's for these types of factors, like you're saying, like if they're all deeply immersed in it, really care, they're gonna just like spot way more mistakes. They're gonna just intuitively know what's going on. Mm. They're, it's gonna be really easy for them to coordinate because they're all just kind of like living it every day and they can like learn things really fast yeah. and like pivot strategy really fast. And all these factors add up to just potentially making it like way more productive.
yeah, yeah, you have so much more context and, so, and a lot more trust potentially. Uh, yeah, and willingness to change. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so eventually, you have to kind of do the big org routes where you hire specialists and you have everything like processified and there's like more bureaucracy. And that's kind of necessary if you want to get to a certain level of scale often, but you kind of want to avoid that as long as possible. <laughs> and yeah, the way to do that is to have like a small, really talented team who are just doing everything themselves. Yeah. And then only gradually outsourcing things or hiring people to do things once it's like super solidified, you know how it works. It's definitely gonna be part of the business in the long term. You're not just gonna like pivot away from it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about, I suppose, uh, various different programs or aspects of 80,000 Hours that had to had to be shut down over the years. And I guess some of, the, some of them have subsequently been resurrected, but <laughs> uh, during that kind of 2012 to 2015 period, what, what were some of the things that got started that then, uh, then had to also be closed? Well, yeah, we did kind of gradually become more focused over those few years. Mm -hmm. And one example of that was, um, I think we'd already mentioned we had this uh, careers pledge that you could take. And that was actually attached to like a mini social network. So it had like profiles of each person, like with bio information. So you could like be part of this community of people doing high impact careers. Yeah. And I think there was like a login to the sites for that and all that kind of stuff. And we hired um, Ozzy Goon, who I think was working with 80,000 Hours for almost, almost a year maybe, but yeah. yeah, quite a while. And anyway, he basically convinced us that like, you know, it would be almost most of his time just to keep this thing like working well and like debugging it and fixing things and like making marginal improvements mm. and kind of like had this whole presentation about technical debt. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and he, his proposal was like, this isn't the key focus. Let's just sh shut it down and this will save a lot of time yeah. and enable you to just focus on the key thing, which was like the online content. Yeah. Were you skeptical of that at the time? Well, I definitely took some convincing. Yeah. But um, yeah, we did it. And I think, I think he was vindicated. Yeah. That. yeah, it's very kind of intuitive because you think all we're doing is keeping a list of names of people who've signed a pledge. How can this take one full time coder just to keep to keep it working? Yeah, I mean, and also the whole rest of the website. OK, no, I mean, and it was a bit more than a list of names. Like I was saying, it was almost like a mini ATK internal social network, you know, with okay. profile functionality and ah, right. I uh, see. like search and commenting and OK, yeah. OK, uh, but that turned out to be somewhat technically complicated. And, and I guess we didn't have that many great web devs at, at the time. So well, yeah, this that was chewing up. This is one of the hardest things to hire for the whole time has been um, engineers. So we just ended up axing the membership thing. Did we get pushback from people who didn't, didn't want us to get rid of that? Maybe a bit, mm. but yeah, I don't remember there being a ton. It being okay, being, not being a big issue. Yeah, I do think something like having a like, I pledge to have a high impact career thing you can sign up for. I know, I think that is like a pretty good idea. And I remember yeah. Like a few years later, uh, Kevin Hale at YC being like, oh, you should like totally have something like this. Mm. And um, there could have been a much more minimal version of it that's more just like a list of names. Yeah. Or like when you sign up to the newsletter, it's like, do you want to take the pledge? Mm. Something like that, which, yeah. So maybe we should have recaptured that thing. But like, I think having the kind of whole like, I mean, another big thing we realized is just like, if you want to have a social network of people like, just use a social network. So, I see, right. you know, we set up the 80,000 Hours LinkedIn group and that's got over 20,000 members. Yeah. And that's that's kind of got all the functionality that we'd want and a bunch more like super detailed profiles that people actually keep mm. up to date. Because if you try and do your own one, they never stay up to date. Of course. You do it once and then like three years later, it's all out of date. Yeah. And LinkedIn have like slightly changed some of their features now, but you can, if you have a premium account, you can search that group by um, lots of different lots fields. Of so you can do like much more than 
what you could have done with our stuff with it. Yeah, that's that's wildly more useful uh, than yeah a list of what well, a list of kind of people's bios that are going to just year by year become like yeah. more and more out of date, uh, such that you have to go look them up somewhere else anyway to figure out who they are and what they're doing. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I remember uh, there, there was another project that designed kind of its own internal forum. Or I think or maybe even coding it almost from scratch. And then, of course, it was really, I guess, maybe it's hard, hard to think back, but social media maybe was not as much, or it wasn't quite as established exactly where people were going to end up on social media mm. back, back, back in those early days. Yeah, and um, forums were a much bigger thing. Forums were still quite a big thing. Yeah, so it felt somewhat natural to code up and, and, and produce a forum for people to discuss uh, various topics. But it was surprisingly challenged to code up your own custom yeah, forum. The, wasn't there a giving we can forum? That's what I'm members. talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, I, I think as soon as the discussion moved on to a social media platform like Facebook, uh, some, some Facebook group, I think the amount of discussion went up substantially. Uh, and it was obviously a lot more easy, easy, easy to maintain and moderate. So yeah, I guess if you could, if you yeah, could hijack I mean, though, the early EA Facebook group was pretty terrible. Yeah, the early, <laughs> so it wasn't like a panacea. <laughs> no, I think the, the Give What We Can one was uh, properly moderated and only people were only allowed in uh, if they'd signed the pledge and so on. So, oh, yeah, which the Give What We Can group was better, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, what, what are some other stuff that, that, that had, to, had to get the axe? Yeah, I mean, in terms of kind of like whole programs, I think that was, and then like the internship, kind of just doing like random projects. And that was probably the main thing. I mean, then just maybe there was a process of focusing the content down more trying to have like I say a core career guide and a list of careers and a list of courses and just like figuring out that's the thing yeah. the most important thing we're going to focus on whereas like early on we had more of this model of just like oh we'll just write blogs about whatever's interesting uh, I see. Approach. which I think like is an interesting alternative model which I kind mm. of call that the magazine model mm. and like looking back that's actually much more scalable because you can kind of almost hire like or you can have lots of freelancers or just let people write about a loose collection of topics and you, you just right. play the role of an editor it kind of works in progress is doing this now yeah, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you can see they've like put together a really good thing like very fast. Yeah. And they have such a broad remit because you can talk about kind of any aspect of social progress or technological progress. Uh, yeah. And like yeah, ways, the world, ways the world could be better. Yeah. Whereas, so like, I we chose if to take this pretty different route, which is more like, here's the key things we want to say about impactful careers. And that's super hard to hire for because if you write anything, it has to be kind of talking for the whole org, mm. fitting into one of the key things like that's uh, kind of key gaps in the overall advice. So you yeah. just need like way more context and be able to like speak in the org's voice basically. Yeah. The downside of the blog post model is just that at the end of the day, you end up with a whole lot of- Yeah, there's no actual of... advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just you like, just... here's a bunch of ideas though. Yeah, some people say that's better from a kind of epistemics point of view because mm. it's getting people to think for themselves because it's really like, no one agrees, like here's just ideas. Yeah, think, re realistically, it's all a mess and, <laughs> yeah. the, and the blog will reflect that <laughs> yeah. it's a mess. Well, and the podcast more takes this model, right? Mm, like exactly, it's more yeah. just like, here's people's views on these topics, listen to a bunch and make up your own mind. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I guess it is kind of like a verbal blog in, a, in, a, in an odd way. I guess the problem with lots of blogs is that you basically people end up reading none of the old posts except for a handful that for some reason yeah. become incredibly popular. So like 95% of it is a ghost town. Um, yeah, that's a big thing because our... Our central content just gets a lot of views. We, you know, we quickly realized that in order to get significant views, a thing either needs to get like a huge spike on social media or to get search traffic or to be like one of the 10 most central pages that you link to. Yeah. And a lot of the other stuff just, yeah, goes nowhere. Yeah, it is interesting. That I feel more, it's, it's more common for people to find a podcast like this and subscribe to it and then go back and listen to a substantial fraction of the old interviews than it is for someone to find a blog and then just go and read the blog from, <laughs> from its beginning forward. Yeah, uh, I, I guess those are about similar. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because I, I thought, hmm. it does, doesn't half of, only half of the listening time each week come from like the old episodes? Like I think on a blog, the ratio would be higher. 
like more would be coming from the back catalog. Though yeah, it would depend on whether you're getting search traffic or not. I think it's more often search traffic to specific old blog posts. Um, I, don't, I don't know why, oh, but yeah, it, not but browsing back. But I think it's yeah. hard to have the discipline to like let's go to the archives. I'm going to read like through like like I'm reading a journal from start to end. Uh, whereas I think that does happen for some reason, and I've done that with podcasts. Where I'm like, this is so great. I'm mm. just going to listen from episode one forward. Yeah, yeah I no, that's know. that's interesting. Could be just that uh, it's easier to avoid distraction when you're listening to audio because you don't have the don't have the whole of the internet at your fingertips. Anyway, yeah, that, I guess there was also no. some programs that we like considered starting but didn't. Okay, yeah, yeah. Where where like one that sticks out is I think when Peter Hartree first started his proposal was that he would help us start a podcast mm. and would like do all the audio for it. And I think that would have been back in 2013, 2014. Yeah, and you know we didn't go for that idea, but I mean that one could have been a mistake because. Mm. If we had got started like three years, well, more than three years early on the podcast, we would have just got a lot more subscribers because of sheer time passing by. Yeah. And it would have helped with this big gap we had in the community where there was always this big lag between things being written up and the actual state of the art knowledge. Yeah. And the podcast has helped to close that a lot because it's so much easier just to interview someone for two hours than to kind of write up like full, like considered articles about all of these positions. Yeah, I think that probably was a mistake because that that would have been four years earlier and it would have mean, meant that we would have had probably a really good interview show at the point where podcasts were beginning to achieve mainstream success. We would have been uh, more yeah. like uh, more at the econ talk level in terms of prominence. Uh, and yes, so much better to communicate all of these ideas that were just kind of stuck in people's heads in private conversations for so many years until finally they've seen the light of day through various different means. But there was another, I think maybe it was in 2014 or 15 that again, people got excited by the idea of of starting a podcast and then it just kind of went away. I think there was like a really <laughs> active decision not to do it. It's just people were too busy with other stuff. Well, but because um, I, I do think on the other side, we've generally had too many programs and been right. too unfocused. Yeah. And so just having even more, I'm not sure would have been the right call. But yeah, maybe there's a bigger picture, long-term division between one vision of 80K as like an online content organization that has like articles, podcasts, maybe YouTube. Yeah. And then there's like the one-on-one -on -one advice, which has mm. like headhunting and talking to people and maybe talks and local groups. So the more like in-person stuff. Yeah. And I think that those like styles of org are actually pretty different. Mm. Like if you almost like on a very kind of basic level, like the cost structure, like one is a high marginal cost thing where it's like in order to have more impact, you need to hire more people and talk to more people. So kind of linear costs. Whereas the online content model is more of like a kind of hits-based thing where if it does something that's really well, you get like tons of views and without any increase in costs. Yeah. And I guess culturally, it would probably be pretty different as well. It's the difference between running yeah, a literary magazine and some sort of sales operation. Yeah. Well, I would say like consultancy, consultancy or something. Because yeah. Yeah. the other one is kind of like hits-based, kind of creativity-driven. You never quite know what your next big thing is going to be that mm. will like drive all your traffic. And you're following all these metrics, like kind of views and stuff like that. And I think that's a pretty different culture from like, okay, this year we're going to do a thousand calls and next year we're going to do 2000 calls. Just and you're whole... really trying to hone your process on this thing that you're doing every day, uh, trying to figure out yeah. how, how can you deliver a better service? Yeah. I mean, they do overlap in the sense that the advisors need to understand the cutting edge of mm. the research as well. So that's the kind of, the thing that unites them is just this like underlying understanding of high impact careers. Yeah. Maybe a final uh, discussion of when we tried to get more focus is that the one-on-one -on -one advice, the, the kind of coaching, advising side of things was kind of suspended uh, when, when you got into Y Combinator. Yeah, do, do you want to explain uh, why that was? Yeah, I mean, Y Combinator got us even more keen on focus mm. and that like really just like startups, just they only have one program and the idea is to grow that exponentially until you're a like multi-billion dollar company. Mm. And then maybe you start another program after that. And so that was the paradigm. And I think that makes a ton of sense. It's really hard to get anything to succeed on a big scale. And so you don't want to, like, as a team of, like, four or five people, you don't want to split across, like, two or three things. You just need to, like, 
find the best thing and hammer it hammer it as much as you can and if that's not working switch to something else yeah and we decided at that point that the online content was the thing with the most upside just almost for the kind of obvious reasons of just being super scalable like a team yeah. of four people could in theory get millions of readers yeah and change those of careers get lots of people involved so yeah we i mean we'd only been advising maybe like 200 people a year and i think there, there's a kind of argument for doing that just to be like speaking to your users so you could have that as a kind of thing that you're not going to scale but I think even then it would be better to just optimize around talking to users and then just be like, no, the online content is our program, but we speak to users because it helps yeah. the online content. That's and cool. yeah, we focused like that in YC and I think that actually went really well. And like mm. you can see in our metrics that from 2014 to about 2017, we grew most of our main metrics like tenfold. Uh, so the web traffic went from, you know, like 100K a year to like 1.5 million-ish per year. That was an era when the focus really was on the website and the, and the web metrics and uh, content, uh, emailing people and so on. And yeah, that definitely paid dividends on, on, on that stream. Yeah, so we, you know, we had things like the career quiz, which got like a ton of people to sign up. And mm -hmm. then eventually this developed into the career guide, which was this kind of central 12 or so articles. And many of those were like very shareable articles. So they would each generate a hit. And then we like promoted the career guide as a package and as a book and did a whole like book promotion campaign around it. So we just had all these ideas and they were all like, paid off in terms of firstly getting a spike when they were first released, but then also building up a library of content that was getting a lot of search traffic. Because we knew that there was lots of people on the internet searching terms like careers that make a difference and like but world's biggest problems. Yeah. And like what skills are valuable and stuff like this. And we um, end up having articles that rank near the top of Google in a lot of these questions. I mean, yeah, if you now search like what are the world's biggest problems, 80,000 hours is often in the top three results. And I think that's like 10,000 views a month or something from that search term. Yeah. And this is where like most of our, like we have this like base of traffic that just still comes from, or new readers coming from that even today, all back from that investment. And I think that would be one of our biggest successes was like focusing on this S kind of content that gets lots of search traffic. And I think that's kind of why 80,000 hours has become the biggest pathway, the kind of biggest single pathway into effective altruism, arguably. Because just there is this really big general interest in high impact careers out there. And we're able to just put these like things up that find people who have that interest and get them in. Okay, uh, we need to leave that there for now. But we will be back to do another recording session uh, and continue the uh, story of VDK soon. We'll, we'll see you when, when we return to the recording studio. Okay, so we're back talking about the, the history of 80,000 hours again. Last time we uh, were talking about going through Y Combinator in 2015 and then the general success that we had working, I guess, focusing on the web content and newsletter subscriptions for in kind of late 2015, 2016, 2017. Yeah, were there any things you wanted to add about that, that era that, uh, that, that we didn't already say? Well, I just think that was looking back a really successful era where we only had around five people on the team and we managed to grow to a, like a website with... Uh, one and a half million views per year and I think about 150,000 newsletter subscribers. And as a result, in the effect altruism surveys, often 80,000 hours was the biggest single pathway by which new people were getting into finding out about effect altruism for the first time. Um, it, we kind of often word of mouth was ahead of us. And I think in one year, we were even a bigger source than word of mouth for finding people. And I think that was where a lot of our historical impact came from was just telling people about effective altruism and telling them about the ideas for the first time and getting them involved with the community. And um, yeah, for a really small team to be doing that, I think that was, looking back, we were we were very productive at that point. That's the time when we had a lot of growth in newsletter subscriptions, a lot of growth in web traffic. It's when we wrote some of our most popular articles that were aimed at a reasonably broad audience. Uh, 
I suppose you have there's the career guide, which had 13 or so articles, including some on general themes like what makes for a satisfying job, what makes uh, you know how to get jobs, uh, you know how to do interviews, that kind of thing. But of course, all all kind of with an effective altruist flavor and connection to it, but also hitting on things that are of interest to to everyone. Yeah, totally. Might be worth mentioning an amusing thing is that a lot of that career guide was written by you when we were on a trip to Thailand. I think at one point there was only three of us uh, full-time staff members, at least only three of us locally. And we thought, well, why are we uh, doing this in Oxford when we when we could be going somewhere with much nicer weather? And we went to Chiang Mai for a while. I guess the team at that point was we had Roman writing articles. Uh, you were writing articles. Peter Hartree was the lead engineer. And then there was me. And was that, that was basically it. I think Maria, Maria Gutierrez was, I think, also doing some stuff for us at that point. but On a part-time basis. I yeah. Think. But Hartree was remote. So it was only you, me, and Roman who in were in person. So it was very easy to up sticks and just go to Thailand if we, if we felt <laughs> like it. And I think it, it, it allowed a lot of focus because we didn't have to, well, we, <laughs> we weren't getting drawn into things happening with other organizations. Yeah. I mean, I think we did use those periods. Didn't we kind of partly Mm. say deliberately, this is just going to be a content-focused period where we'll kind of clear out everything else? Definitely. And what was it? We spent five, six weeks in Chiang Mai? I think it might even be more than that because we got visas for there. So I think it could be two or three months possibly in Chiang Mai. And then... We didn't feel like we wanted to go home uh, quite yet. Uh, and and, and you, you travel in China before and, and spoke Chinese. So we decided to go to uh, Chengdu. Yeah, to Chengdu. Yeah, one of my favorite cities in China. And I remember, yeah, that was actually like quite a lot of work to find an Airbnb yeah. in Chinese in Chengdu. And I remember that actually we finally found a place that seemed like it might be good, but it was one bedroom too short because one of the bedrooms was a mezzanine. So it was mm. open to the living room. And I told this to the host, like, that's the problem. And she was like, don't worry, I'll um, install a wall. And then the next day she messaged me to be like, okay, there is now a wall. <laughs> yeah, it was it was incredible. Yeah, just, yeah, I guess just taking the space and making it completely private. And I think we might have even seen the person who was still just putting the finishing work on the on, on the wall when, when, when we arrived. It's not so easy to visit China these days, so I'm really glad to have gotten in a trip to China for a month or, or five yeah, weeks. Yeah, I, th- I, I think China, was, I think we were only there for about three weeks. Okay, yeah. Um, and that was when Peter McIntyre started, so... His first three weeks at 8,000 hours were actually in China. Mm. Uh, so he just flew there straight to meet us, Yeah, um, which was like, yeah, quite a, quite a big introduction. The food there was incredible. And I, I think we were all just astonished by how well organized the, the country was. I, compared to Oxford or London, it's not like things worked <laughs> much more smoothly, uh, which, which I, in I, wasn't, I wasn't in Thailand. Yeah, okay. yeah right. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, yeah, we, we, had, we had your help to, to get us around because almost nobody spoke English. So it was definitely challenging at times. But yeah, I mean, those retreats, I think, were super productive times because we just put everything else aside and, and, and focused on writing and publishing and focusing on the, on the web content. Uh, so that probably did contribute to that being a bit of a golden era for web traffic growth. Yeah, I mean, and I think more generally, Weiss, just being really focused on just one product and one set of metrics. And, and that's like something that YC encouraged us to do. I think also just that, that you kind of get a critical mass where you're bouncing ideas off each other. So like, you were really good at thinking of things. And, I, I, and Will was also like kind of a bit more involved with ADK at that point. And yeah, just like the team as a whole, we were, I don't know, it's just like we would think of things quickly and yeah. Okay, so uh, I suppose at, the, at, at some point we kind of switched from that approach. I think it was in 2017 or 18, maybe, uh, uh, yeah, do you want to talk about uh, why things changed? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a kind of gradual thing, but I think around 2017, things started to go less well in a bunch of ways. and. Looking back, it wasn't clear at the time, but we hit a plateau of web traffic. So in 2017, it was 1.6 million. And then we didn't break that until uh, 2020. 
And also when we looked like this, we only found out this a few, few years later, but 2017 was also a really outstanding year for plan changes and, and finding people changing their careers. And yeah, I mean, it, it, actually it's still, in our last evaluation, it was still the best year for plan changes historically, mm. though we don't know what the last couple of years were like. I would hope that now 2022 will be ahead of 2017, but um, yeah, we won't know that for a few years. So yeah, at some point we, we started to feel uncomfortable perhaps with how broad the, the content was. And we were thinking maybe this isn't actually focused enough on the topics that we think are the highest priority. Well, okay. No, so no, I think no. the, the bigger issue was that we basically started to set up a bunch of other programs and okay. became unfocused again. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing was during YC, we shut down the one-on-one program. So 8K kind of historically has been online content and then that helps us find people and then we speak to them one-on-one and it's this kind of complimentary thing. Yeah, so we'd always had this idea that we would bring back the one-on-one advice or the in-person advice in some form. And we came across Peter McIntyre, who we were really excited about hiring. So we thought, okay, he could start doing some type of in-person program again. He didn't actually do one-on-one advice to start with. He started him back doing the workshops. Mm. So the career guide was, for a while, uh, I just did these in-person workshops that would take four or five hours and we would basically lead someone through the whole, all the material in the career guide and get them to think about how it might apply to their own career over an afternoon. Yeah. And people seem to really like those. Uh, and that was basically what then was turned into the career guide later. And you can actually see on YouTube, there's a video version of me giving this as a lecture in Cambridge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we should have actually then stopped there. And then okay, it's like, you do the workshops and you turn, make them online and you have them as videos. And then you've like kind of succeeded. Yeah. Um, but instead we were like, okay, let's go and have in-person ones again. So... Peter did that and this kind of insanely productive period where he did about, I think he did about 50 in-person workshops in one year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he sometimes do like multiple in a couple of days in a... That guy has a lot of social energy. I think <laughs> I did a handful of them and that, that was tiring enough Yeah, for they're me. pretty exhausting just to do one, yeah. But then Peter, I think, correctly realized that it would be better to be much more targeted instead. And so he said we should do one-on-one careers advice again with people coming through the website with an application form. And so we restarted the one-on-one program with Peter running it. And I think, okay, if we'd just done that, I think that could have been a pretty reasonable place to be. It's just like, well, we have the online content and we have one-on-one, which is kind of our original model. But then we instead went on to set up three more programs (laughs) relatively soon after. So one being the podcast, which looking back, that was clearly a, a great thing to have done. So I wouldn't call that a mistake, though I think if we just had the web content and the podcast, I think that would have also been a really natural place to be because that's a kind of classic content org playbook. Like if you think about Vox or something, they have articles and they have their YouTube channel and they have their podcast. Yeah. And it's kind of a natural package of stuff that's all quite, it's kind of a similar skill set to do these different things. Yeah, totally. Um, so that would have also been a really good direction to go down. And then maybe the next step would have been to add a YouTube channel. But yeah, so instead we did the podcast and we brought back the one-on-one team. And then after a year or so, Peter thought that headhunting might be more impactful than one-on-one. And I got convinced of that as well. And so then we basically split the one-on-one team into an advising team headed by Brenton, I think, and then later joined by Michelle. And then a headhunting team, which was Neil and Peter. And then also we were like, actually, it seems like having a job board would be really effective, probably more effective than advising. So uh, Peter set up a job board page on the website and then... When Peter McIntyre, I think, moved to headhunting, then Peter Hartree ended up 
focusing on kind of making the job board his main thing for a while. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so what was going through our heads? Because, of course, we, we knew all of this stuff about focus, but we still slightly fell for this for this issue of yeah, coming up I mean, with so many products. Looking back, I'm like, I don't quite see how I managed to, like, it seems like such an obvious mistake looking back. Was it yeah. driven by, I suppose, we would like to grow, would like to hire... But then the new people you want to hire, that they have a particular skill set that's a better fit for a different program, or they have a they have a passion for a particular different program that they want to lead on. And so that is kind of an instigator for for starting something new. I think that was a factor. And I think looking back one lesson, one kind of rule of thumb now I would try to follow is if you're setting up a new program in order to retain a particular staff member, you probably shouldn't. I think within effect vultures and thinking, there is also it's just so seductive to be thinking at the margin. Mm. Um and yeah, do, do you want to ex- explain what you mean by that? Well, you're kind of like, well, we're doing these two great things now. If we add a third thing, mm. then that will be even better because <laughs> we'll yeah. just be doing more. Because the costs of loss of focus, they're kind of more nebulous than the just concrete extra impact. And so, yeah, we were kind of like, well, we're not doing advising. Maybe add on even better. Let's experiment with that, see how it goes. Maybe then we'll have both. And then that's kind of even better than just having one of them. But I think another rule of thumb I would say looking back is like, don't start a new program unless you think it's at least several folds better, maybe three folds or something. Huh. And, you know, we thought Henning was like maybe two fold better. We didn't really have strong reasons to think that. I think that was actually just below, that's below the threshold at which you should switch. We should have just carried on with advising until that was more scaled up and then added headhunting later. Right. But yeah, I'm sure listeners can understand it. If- if your intuition is that this other program is going to be twice as good yeah. as the existing one, <laughs> it's so seductive to start it. Like, I mean, how do you, how do you say no to that? I suppose in this case, maybe we could have said, well, the evidence isn't strong enough, so we should just stick with what we have. Yeah, and I mean, I guess there is a kind of sense that if literally the expected value mm. is twice as high, then you should. Yeah, <laughs> um, but, but it's more like what I more mean is like you have a kind of rough back of the envelope, which is like, oh, maybe it's twice as good, but that's probably going to regress a lot when you actually do the thing. Like right. probably your, your estimate is over-optimistic. Well, and, and, and I suppose yeah. it's also just not picking up all of these effects Switching that you costs. have on other programs and yeah, yeah. Yes, lack of focus, uh, lack of coordination across the organization. Well, we then had to invest a lot in kind of getting headhunting going. So mm. it was kind of below its potential for a while, whereas instead we could have been doubling down on having a much bigger advising team. So yeah, yeah it's just kind of, there's this kind of dynamic aspect as well. Yeah, I mean, I think even now it's a pretty controversial topic how many programs should 80,000 hours have. And I've gone back and forth over the years. The other mistake I think we made around this period was moving to California. Mm, yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So when we were in YC, we, you know, we kind of drank the Kool-Aid a bit. We're like, you know, mm. Silicon Valley is the center of the world. This is like where all the most ambitious people are. And we did get a lot out of being in YC. And it was also, it probably was the key hub of effective altruism. It was like mm. definitely, I mean, it's basically going in that direction. So mm. we... We were like, well, we want to be at the center of things. We should move. And we did, yeah, we did a process about it. We we figured our hiring would be better there. Mm. It would be better to be in, it would be better to be part of the community there and Silicon Valley community. Yeah. I remember one factor that stood out, or, or the most salient factor in, in my mind was that the labor market was massively larger, that suddenly you can hire from a labor pool of 330 million rather than, I suppose at this point, the UK decided to leave the EU. So we <laughs> yeah. were talking about just a labor market of 65 yeah, they, million. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I guess a lot of Europeans also don't want to move to Silicon Valley, but it's probably a slightly easier mm. pitch than getting Americans to move to the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, like one big, like the American salaries are way higher. It's just one kind of bottleneck you have to get past. Mm. So those are some of the reasons we we decided to move. I mean, do, do you think it was a mistake in retrospect? 
Well, yeah. So, you know, we did, it was a lot of work to get the visas mm. and to move house and to, you know, figure out how to do American taxes and kind of yeah. move our whole lives. And then within two years, we moved back to London, which yeah. was also quite a lot of work. Yeah. So yeah, it was very costly and we did decide to move back. I think the key thing is that we could have, we did get a lot of benefits from being there. And I think mm. in particular, we got to know some of the people, the effective altruism people and living in the Bay a lot better. And, you know, that also in particular led to hiring Howie. Mm, so I know yeah. <laughs> maybe that alone was worth it. Yeah. But I think we could have got a lot of the benefits by just spending one to three months there per year and pretty much without any of the costs. Yeah. Do you think we could have known ahead of time? So I guess we decided to move there in 2016, maybe in mid-2016, I think. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Should we have been able to predict at the time that this was a bad idea? I, I remember I was, I said that I was neutral on it. I think I like neither voted for it nor nor voted against it. But I remember, de- I remember <laughs> okay. declaring to a group of people uh, a few weeks before we went that I was like, we're going to not like this and we're going to re- regret it. But, but by the time we realize uh, it's going to be too late and we'll be too committed to the we'll Bay be- to move back, which well, that- was almost yeah. right, but not, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, was, I was wrong about the last bit. Well, yeah. So it did turn out to be worse than we expected because we thought it would be better for hiring, hmm. but actually we didn't hire any Americans in that whole two years except for Howie. Yeah. And in fact, we were cons- strongly considering hiring like several British people. Yeah. Something. Do you know what was going on with that? Is that just happenstance? Or I, I, I think it is the case that concentration of people who are interested in effective altruism is greater in the London, Cambridge, Oxford area. Oh, oh I thought- sorry. That, that certainly than the US as, as it was. I think our ideas are more popular in the UK per capita than they are in the United States per capita. And possibly there's even more people who have an 80,000 hour style of thinking in London, Oxford, Cambridge than there is in the Bay Area, though it's, uh, it might be We're definitely. Bit I mean, we've definitely been overrepresented. The UK is overrepresented in our audience because of yeah. being from the UK. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think it is that we didn't end up hiring more Americans, given that that seemed like such a natural and salient benefit? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it was probably just partly bad luck. But then I think just partly like there isn't that big a difference in the number of really engaged EAs who are willing to move to London versus are willing to move to San Francisco. Like it's about 50-50. Maybe it's like slightly tilted towards San Francisco, but then actually I think another factor was just our network was mm. UK heavy. And right, that was course. maybe just about enough to kind of, you know, may- maybe Silicon Valley, maybe like the Bay Area, it's like the labor market there is, maybe it's like 1.3 times bigger than the UK cluster. But then just our network thing was like enough to tilt it towards being a wash, basically equal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about the, the decision to, to come back? I mean, this is like another aspect of why it turned out to be a mistake is I think I remember in the document saying this will be personally worse for me, but mm. I think it's worth it for the greater impact for the org. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I Basically said, oh, we're, we're, we're going to yeah. regret this. I was like, this is just clearly going to be worse from, from my personal <laughs> point of view. I know far fewer people there. I feel like I have a great cultural fit here in, in, in Oxford, so why? <laughs> yeah, so I think we did kind of realize it would be worse, but I think at least personally, I probably underestimated it, yeah. And then I think I also maybe underestimated how much like making the personal sacrifice would bug me. Well, I mean, moving country is a big deal, and I had friends from university who weren't involved with effective altruism. And I really valued that social scene. And then I moved to, well, we moved to Berkeley where we didn't really know anyone who wasn't working in effective altruism. And so I kind of lost that social scene that was really important to me. And then in addition, it was at least the proximate trigger of ending almost a five-year long-term relationship. Yeah. And so like the combination of those two things happening at the same time was 
Like it's like losing the relationship and also not having a social scene to find a new partner. So that that was pretty tough. It's something that I hadn't really thought about ahead of time is that when you move to a new place for work, then almost everyone you meet for quite a while is people who you're connected to through work. And it really reduces the diversification in your friendship group. And that can take quite a long time to, to, to build back in. You know, I was, I was only starting to do that, I think, in the UK after many years of living there to, to start to meet more and more people who didn't have anything to do with, uh, with effective altruism, which was, which was really great. Um, yeah. And, and I think also San Francisco, it's hard to break out of tech people. Yeah, because just in general, this the city is way more dominated by one industry. Yeah, it's re- it's a real hub for a particular yeah particular set of interests. In this case, it was particularly rough because it was potentially you know forever changing your lifestyle in a way that was very hard to undo without a, without I guess quit, quit, quitting your job. And so even if you're willing to make that sacrifice at that point, you know, many years later, I, uh, it, it could grate a whole lot more. If you if you come to the point where you're thinking my life just isn't what I actually wanted it to be, uh, the, the structurally it feels it feels wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess just in a way that's saying it's like maybe a bigger sacrifice than yeah. it, it looks at first. I mean, I guess that was the impetus for moving back was I was much less happy. And I realized, I knew one of the factors was being based in the Bay. So that kind of made it a topic of discussion. And then I remember it was then how we, we were eating vegetarian Chinese food at our favorite restaurant in Berkeley. Uh, yeah. And he was just like, well, actually, should we consider moving back? And then we started a kind of more formal process where we polled everyone on their preferences and we reanalyzed recent hiring and, you know, which people would have preferred to be based in which places and tried to kind of estimate. And we realized that the hiring wasn't as good as we thought. And we also realized that I think it was pretty clear that the team's, the current, the team at that point's preferences was to be in London. Yeah. So I think the immediate instigator was that we were very, getting very close to signing a five-year contract oh, on an office yeah, in San Francisco. Of yeah, and, then, yeah. and then how we raised the question, <laughs> it doesn't seem like you really want to be living here. So why are we signing this this contract to stay in a place that yeah, that's, you, yeah. that, that, that uh, quite a few of you seem unhappy in? And yeah, so there was you and me, I think, who were pretty keen to go back. A few Australians who I think generally lean towards going back. They're not as strong. And then quite a few people who missed home who were, who, who were British. The other big benefit we didn't realize is we didn't actually end up being very involved with the Silicon Valley community at all. Mm. After YC ended, we that kind of fell away a bit. I'm, so that that didn't end up being a benefit like we hoped. Yeah, I, I don't know that that was necessarily a mistake. So unfortunately, I think our ideas perhaps they just don't tie into entrepreneurship exactly in in in, in that way. We're, we're not necessarily trying to start lots of for profit companies or. As it, it, the cards have just fell in such a way that it doesn't seem like that's usually the, the best way to have an impact, or, the, or at least not the way that we've focused on. Uh, so, so it wasn't the synergies weren't quite as strong as as, as we might have expected. Yeah, but I, I did get really useful advice on how to run an org, and I, I did still keep getting some of that advice. I would still meet the YC partners every now and again. Yeah, but I could have imagined being more involved and maybe just meeting. You know, when we first arrived in the valley, you know, we like. We, yeah, we met like people from the PayPal mafia. We met Reed Hoffman. We met like all the like the founder of Gmail was our first like mentor at YC, and right. we met Sam Altman and Paul Graham, and this was all really exciting. But then I was kind of like, maybe that's going to continue, and you know, mm. we'll meet like Jeff Bezos as well. And but that didn't it just <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Which I mean, maybe could have happened if I'd carried on kind of pursuing that and socializing with those types of people, but just we didn't. We didn't do so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we, we spent a lot of time talking about mistakes that we've made over the years, uh, which I guess is natural because that's the kind of thing that's very easy to learn from. But we should also spend some time thinking about what we what we did right, what what, what some of uh, 8,000 Hours' strengths were. What's one that stands out for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest one that comes to mind we already covered, which was focusing on the online content, focusing on content that would get search traffic. 
and kind of building up the web traffic, especially the 2015 to 2017 period. But then, yeah, more just like with the org in general, one thing that comes to mind almost sounds kind of simple, but it's just trying quite hard to stick to basic org processes. Like, yeah, learning about like the kind of basic things you should do as a line manager and doing them. So having like quarterly feedback rounds mm. and having uh, weekly one-on-ones and actually writing down goals each week and checking whether you did them or not. Yeah. And this stuff will, yeah, it all sounds quite obvious, but it actually takes a lot of kind of conscientiousness to just keep consistently doing that every week. And it makes a big difference. I, th- I think it's made a big difference in terms of one thing is it seems like this often an impression that 80,000 hours is generally pretty well run. And I think that's reflected in our retention stats, which yeah, I don't actually have the latest ones, but I would say over our history, it's probably over 90%. Yeah. Um, I think so stuff that we did really consistently, having line manager meetings regularly and following, you know, a particular uh, kind of format for having those so that you don't miss stuff. Having uh, all hands meetings or having, we, we, as, as the org has grown, all of these schedules have have shifted. But there was a time when every uh, when there was only a few of us every week, we would meet and discuss what had, what had happened the the previous week and what we we're going to do next week, uh, and looking at the metrics and and so on. There's also kind of feedback rounds that you do regularly. Yeah, the, the open meetings where people can bring up issues with their line manager that they that might not fit into a normal weekly meeting. Yeah, reviewing metrics so on like on a particular cycle so that you can then change it. We did bouts for a while where you'd set goals for say the next 10 weeks or so and then you'd try to finish particular things by the end of that bout and then at the end of that you review that and come up with a new plan for the next bout which I think was like it's very good to provide structure in something that otherwise doesn't naturally have cycles in it. Yeah, are there any else that any others that Yeah, um, I mean I guess a lot of this someone who's worked in a tech startup before might mm-hmm. just think this all sounds so obvious that it's like why are we even mentioning this but Mm. i mean at least some of the organizations in the community didn't do these things especially early on yeah i think we were one of the fastest to kind of implement that whole package i think a lot of stuff when they join they say one of the things that really attracted them was they feel like we have a very supportive culture Mm. um which maybe yeah maybe it's but you maybe you can speak to this better than me but um for instance i've always i guess i at least with the people i managed i always tried to be very pragmatic about problems and so and that made it people feel like they could bring things up yeah and this would also extend to things like mental health where I always just tried to be able to talk about them openly and just take a kind of pragmatic approach like what's going to work yeah type approach to it yeah definitely yeah we have a culture where I think by and large people feel pretty safe to talk about mental health issues that they're that they're facing and to to share tips and tricks with one another about what what things they're 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 trying and 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 what's what's working for them and feel fine telling their manager that they were pretty down this week so they didn't get uh, so much done. I think by and large that's well I mean for some people that's just incredibly valuable and almost essential in in a place that they that they're going to work depending on what you know what what they like as a person. Uh, because yeah, if, if if you're feeling down and then you're struggling with work and then you kind of have to put on a front uh, with, with your manager that you're getting things done that you're not, that is can potentially start a very negative spiral for folks. And eighty thousand hours has always steered pretty clear of that dynamic. So I mean, yeah, I, I value that personally as well. Yeah, and then I think people find the culture quite friendly. And then I think we've also put a lot of effort into things like having a nice office and just generally trying to make it a nice place to work having like good policies about like maternity leave and things like that mm. and um well yeah i mean also pushing to raise salaries probably ahead of many many orgs yeah we've hired a bunch of people who got kind of burned out to other <laughs> um EA orgs and then 
came to 80, you know, this is something that attracted them to 80k yeah and i think it's also contributed to just having less problems with lots of like drama and burnout and things like that than is often common yeah i mean we're also just hiring so many great people it seems like yeah, the, the the caliber of the people who are interested in working at eighty thousand hours is is just really wonderful. So, um, in in the past, we've often felt a little bit. I, guess, I mean, many years ago, I think we felt quite limited by our ability to to hire exactly the, the people with the skills that we wanted. But um, at this point, we're we're really able to grow through. We're really able to, to to grow the inputs and grow the outputs pretty pretty reliably. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, and then I mean, looking forward, I think yeah, a big priority is just to actually get to the point where say the majority of students has even heard of us which i think yeah we're still now a lot closer with the marketing scale up but Mm. there's still a bunch more to be be done there so one reason we've recorded this now is that after 10 years of leading eighty thousand hours more or less from its inception you're handing over the reins and are going to be uh, trying out some other projects what are some of the reasons to to be making that change yeah i mean we touched on some of them before but from around 2017 i started basically feeling less aligned with gradually less aligned by the role and less motivated in it. Hmm. And so like, for instance, the thing I find most motivating is like spreading the ideas and and writing and getting the ideas out there. And so when the organization was more focused on content and I had time for writing, that felt like a better fit for me Hmm. than now where we have four programs, I guess almost 30 staff now and Hmm. hiring rapidly. A lot of the programs aren't doing content so now what the org needs is more someone who just really wants to make management their main thing. Yeah. And throughout most of the history, I was kind of doing these two jobs where one was kind of head of product and almost author of um, a lot of our most central content. And then the other was being CEO. And um, that was pretty difficult um, to do both. And it's, it just becomes harder and harder as the org grows. Yeah, the, the, the more staff you're line managing and the more people involved in general, the more that just ends up eating the role such that there's very little time left for for creative work. Yeah, and 80,000 hours, I would say, is almost harder to run than a typical org of this size because we have four programs. Mm. It would be much simpler if we just had one program. Then um, yeah. it would be easier to get your head around. And you'd we kind of have four and each one's almost run by a mini CEO who has mm. a lot of, like they're developing them almost as separate products. So yeah. Yeah, are there, are there any other ways that the role became a, a worse fit over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've touched on the most important things, the ones we just said, though. Mm. Yeah, there was probably some other stuff. I mean, we also mentioned earlier, I think there was something where the move to California kind of used up a bit of like sacrifice capital or something, Yeah, which I think then turned into a factor. I think personally, the lack of growth in the web content was a kind of ongoing source of frustration for me or affected my morale. And then, I don't know, there's maybe also just a sheer variety thing where I'm like very kind of normally in most of my life, I really crave like new experiences. Um, And so just doing the same thing for 10 years, a lot of stuff that was really interesting and fresh back in 2014. Okay, now it's like the 10th annual review. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've both I guess yeah we've both kind of been working on this stuff for, together for for almost ten years. It's been it's been it's been a long while. <laughs> eighty thousand hours has changed. We've we've both grown up a bunch. Nobody could say you haven't haven't given a lot to eighty thousand hours uh, over over all this time. Yeah, there was a tension going back almost to the start where it was always just I wanted to do more writing, mm. um, but it was kind of hard to fit around running the rest of the org. Yeah, it just generally became more intense over time. Totally, all those factors were making me less kind of less motivated in the role and less less of a good fit for it. 
Okay, well, we are almost out of time here. But uh, did you have anything you wanted to say about the the future of ADK uh, b- before we go? So I think like just for the, what might be in store in the next few years is it seems like compared to say 2020, 2021, we could triple our audience from there and mm. really reach, you know, become a thing where it's a pretty well-known, if you're, if you're really serious about social impact among students, that would just be like a typical thing to check out would be 80,000 hours. And yeah, we could then at that point be doing calls with maybe three, even 5,000 people a year, both new people coming in and doing calls with people who we already know. It's like that kind of like that community builds up bigger and bigger each year. But yeah, we could also imagine with one-on-one there's there's adding headhunting back, which we've started doing. And just in general, like as the readership gets bigger and bigger, 80,000 hours is mostly in the past focused on getting new people into effects altruism for the first time, Mm. which I think is actually a this is a whole other topic, but I think there's a thing that confuses people about 80,000 hours is they kind of think that what we're doing is providing the best possible careers advice for people in effects of altruism. But actually, I think a lot of the impacts come from getting new people in yeah. rather than as we've reached more and more people, it becomes more and more important to focus on directing our existing and helping to coordinate our existing community of readers to actually solve all these problems that yeah. we're talking about. And there's a huge amount to be done. And you can imagine in 10 or 20 years, if current trends continue, they'll you know they'll be Nobel Prize winning scientists, and they will they'll be top politicians and more tech CEOs who are people, um, and just also tens of thousands of people who've all been influenced by eighty thousand hours. Yeah, um, and what that community might be able to do if it's able to coordinate and be able to start projects and get them staffed by the headhunting team, you can imagine really like getting a lot <laughs> a lot done in the next couple of decades. Yeah, there's uh, so much we still don't know, or the, the the range of you know problems that we could look into and develop a really deep understanding of, and especially you know potentially having specialists who really deeply know some particular problem area or some particular career path. That's something we, we haven't hit the scale at where we can where we can do that very much yet. But well, that would be another yeah another big avenue for expansion would be just having an, a big research team who are actually able to cover all of the yeah all of the courses and different career options. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been fully committed to the eighty thousand hours uh, thing since uh, since I moved to the UK in in, in twenty twelve, and I uh, I've never doubted that <laughs> we would continue to grow and continue to, to have more impact, and and eventually our ideas would cut through and be able to, to help a lot of people do more good. Whether whether or not we'll, we'll reach a, a research team of hundreds of people and so on, I'm not sure, but I'm very optimistic about about the next few years. So yeah, thanks so much for getting eighty thousand hours to this point and uh, being such a pleasure to work with for yeah a, a decade now. My guest today has been Benjamin Todd. Thanks so much for coming on eighty k after hours, man. Cool. Thanks, Rob. All right. So as I mentioned in the interim, in a uh, funny coincidence, 80,000 Hours is currently looking for a new CEO because our current CEO is heading off to work at Open Philanthropy. And if you're the kind of person who listened enthusiastically to that whole interview between me and Ben, even if you're not suitable for the role, uh, you, you probably are among the 1% most suitable people in the entire world for that for the CEO position. Um, though I would note 80,000 Hours is quite a bit bigger and quite a bit more formal than the era that uh, Benjamin and I were talking about through most of that conversation. Anyway, uh, we're currently accepting expressions of interest in the role and they will be open until the 10th of December. So do, do get on this fairly quickly uh, if you are excited about the idea. 
On top of the CEO vacancy, as I mentioned in the intro, there's a decent chance that we promote someone from within 80,000 hours uh, to become the CEO, which would then open up the position that they're currently in. So at the same time as we're asking people to let us know if they think they have what it takes to be CEO, uh, we're also curious to know if they might be interested in applying to be our director of internal systems, uh, website director, or director of special projects, uh, should one of those positions just happen to open up. You can find the job ad for all of that on our website at 80,000hours.org slash latest. Or if you Google 80,000 hours work with us, that should bring you to the page that lists all of our current job vacancies. If you're curious, you should really go read that. But a few things that I can say about the role. Um, our CEO is, as you might expect, ultimately responsible for increasing the positive social impact that's generated by 80,000 hours. In practice, currently, they line manage five people. Uh, those are the directors of the website, podcast, one-on-one advising, internal systems, and special projects. The CEO's main responsibilities include setting the strategy for 80,000 hours, including you know what audiences we should target with what kinds of recommendations and which impact metrics we should be keeping in mind, inspiring the entire organization to be ambitious and trying to, trying to have more impact, hiring, retaining, and firing senior staff, um, ensuring we keep the positive aspects of our team culture like curiosity, honesty, and kindness, um, ensuring we remain highly organized and, and functional as, as, we, as we are at the moment, managing relationships with our key donors and, and other stakeholders, and I guess just addressing any of the most important and thorny issues that come up anywhere in the organization. In terms of the other three roles that I mentioned, the Director of Internal Systems currently has a team of around five and oversees our operations, legal compliance, hiring, and office. The website director manages a team of around eight and is focused on maintaining and building the website, producing written content, improving our career advice and our newsletter, and marketing our services in order to, to reach a whole lot of new users. And the director of special projects is a kind of generalist role that involves leading or managing you know, uh, various ad hoc projects on behalf of the CEO, uh, usually in the strategy or operation space. And you know, those projects change uh, from time to time, but uh, they can include project managing fundraising, the annual review, updating salaries, uh, and helping with strategy refreshes for individual teams. And we think uh, the sort of person that we're looking to hire for CEO has uh, many or, or most of these traits, including um, being willing to live in or near London uh, and, and work for the op- from the office that we have here. Um, they have substantial experience managing people or projects. They're able to initiate difficult conversations, able to preserve good relationships among staff. We're looking for someone who's able to identify and focus on the most important uncertainties that we face, um, is able to set strategy for a big project with an appropriate amount of, of decisiveness. Uh, we're looking for someone who has a broad and deep understanding of current advanced thinking about how to make the world a better place in the way that 80,000 Hours understands it. Of course, we're looking for someone who can motivate and inspire people to to follow their vision. Uh, someone who's resilient to the inevitable challenges and setbacks that comes with uh, that that come with leadership. Um, someone with a track record of working hard. Someone who's likely to work at eighty thousand hours for at least three years if they come on as CEO. Uh, and someone who likes the sound of our cultural values, which are aiming for ambitious long term impact, having a modest scientific mindset, uh, openness and honesty, focus, uh, fun and friendliness self-care and personal growth, and finally, aiming for exceptionally well-researched advice. In terms of thinking about the scale of 80,000 hours and the impact you might be able to have, um, I can give you some indications of of how large 80,000 hours is. So in terms of scale, during 2023, we're going to spend about $6 million and have an average of 27 primary staff plus six uh, full-time equivalent contractors. Uh, We've grown around 30% per year over the last two years and aim to kind of maintain or increase that growth ideally. Uh, And on top of that, we'll spend around $3 million on marketing in 2023, uh, a figure that we also aim to increase in future years if we can find cost-effective methods to, to do that marketing. 
And in terms of intermediate outputs, uh, in 2023, we'll have about 750,000 click-throughs to high-impact jobs on our job board, around 250,000 new subscribers to our weekly email newsletter, about 300,000 hours of listening time on our podcast, spread across about 100,000 subscribers, uh, over 3 million unique visitors to our website, over 1,500 one-on-one conversations with uh, people who, in my view, are embarrassingly talented uh, and looking to change their careers in order to have more impact, uh, as well as tens of millions of ad impressions across sponsored videos and, and social media and so on. All right, that's uh, that, that's plenty for me to read here. If your interest has been piqued, uh, go find that job ad at 80,000hours.org slash latest, or of course, by Googling 80,000 hours work with us. Uh, again, expressions of interest close on the 10th of December. All right. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell and Ryan Kessler. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Kenny Moore. And Kieran Harris produces the show. Thanks for listening. 